At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. How's it going, everybody? This is Mike Sempervivi, a Wrestling Observer Live in the Adam and Mike Big Audio Nightmare, located over at WrestlingObserver.com. We want you to listen to our show, but we thank you very much for checking out Keeping It Strong Style here on the Social Suplex Radio Network. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get-go, boy Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your host, Jeremy Donovan And the young boy, Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy, Josh Smith on today's show, we'll review the first two nights of G1 Climax 32 and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prowrestlingtees.com. Slash social suplex. That's where you can get your official keeping it strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the keeping it strong style logo. This episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for NJPWworld.com. With features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.US today for details. Young boy, here we are. G1 Climax 32 has kicked off. Thanks to what our, our fifth or sixth. G1 recovering. Yeah, no one cares about that, Jeremy. Enough with the yip-yap. It's G1 season. Let's get to it. Come on, let's go, let's go. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. This is, we started the show late 2017, so 18, 19, 20, This is our fifth G1. Half, half a decade of dominance, <laughs> of destruction. The streak. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! But yeah, no, I'm glad to be on the show this week. Um, yeah, the G1's here. 
a little different. We did an awesome preview last week. But you know what's weird? I usually feel like by the time we start this episode, like we're jumping into it, we're already like at least three nights in, maybe more. And we're only two nights in, and they were like kind of lighter, like, you know, because later we're going to have more matches per evening. And, you know, these early nights, just like four little, you know, kind of pick me ups or whatever. So, kind of feel like it, it's only kind of started. And we've gotten a pretty lengthy pause between tomorrow, which is night three. Yeah, at this point, the beginning of the tournament seems to be spaced out well. Like this, like you mentioned, this weekend shows were very easy to watch. And then with the break um, yesterday and today, uh, that was pretty good. But I know things will uh, heat back up. And, you know, you mentioned the preview last week. We did have our friend Chris Samsa on the show to preview the show of us. and Our friend Chris Samsa. <laughs> He, he was, of course, on, on Super J-Cast also. As a business associate. <laughs> As uh, just an acquaintance, purely an acquaintance. That was a business transaction. This here is where the heart and soul really takes place. But but did you see that they were proposing either we uh, have a split custody of Chris or we do some kind of <laughs> gimmick match, a, a Samsa on, on, in a, on a pole match? Or I suggested, you know, for New Japan audience, we would we'd have to do a dog cage match. No, I actually list. Well, I I almost always listen to Jay Cast, but I listened to last week's episode after he came on our show, and I thought, uh, yeah, I thought the show he did with um, Damon was really good. In fact, I was wondering to myself, like, did we not interview like Chris enough when we first had him on our show? Like, they were getting like into the deep histories of like Chris, and I was like, I feel like we just talked about like. That he liked Nakamura Bushi, and that was about it. We, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. We like, all right, let's go. <laughs> I'll have to go back to the very first time we had Chris on, which must have been what two, two or three years ago now. Uh, Maybe we need to like increase our interviewing uh, skills or freshen up on that. I don't know. I feel like you know, within within moments, you know, Damon was able to get to the heart of him, and like I said last week, Damon's also the individual who, with one question reduced will osprey to tears so something he's doing that we're not i don't know he's got the magic touch yeah he's got the gift of gab yeah <laughs> but yeah definitely the people's souls yeah definitely a good interview there on jcast so if you want to learn more about chris samsa and just kind of his journey into following new japan all that stuff definitely check out that episode from last week but uh let's get into our g1 coverage for this week so of course uh things kicked off with the uh, press conference that always happens before tournament action uh, kicks off. We got to see all the pictures of all the fits, and we had a question here from MJ Does PR: Who had the best fit of the press conference, and why was it Ishi? <laughs> you know, Ishi does always look pretty fly at the uh, press conferences, does he not? Oh yeah, because I remember when we were there for the G129 press conference in Dallas. That man. Great suit on, the shoes look good, like the sunglasses, like that man was dressed to the nines, as they would say. You know, I'm not gonna lie, I this this year I got busy. I didn't watch the press conference. I read a few like excerpts of uh comments and interesting like tad bits, but uh yeah, I wasn't I didn't watch it. I'm sure you did probably. No, I did not watch the whole press conference. Uh, oh wow! I, I did see like some of the highlights or some of the the funnier ones or the ones that, um, you know, kind of the more important ones. But I didn't watch it from beginning to end. Bro, 
the the way I get away with not watching it is because I know you're going to, so I'm good. <laughs> if we're both gonna not watch it, then you know that's not very professional, bro. You need to like cover it with me if you're not gonna watch it, <laughs> and then that way I can give you a permission. <laughs> no, um, I did see uh, you know. Some of the more ludicrous ones, like uh, Filthy Tom Waller came out in all denim get-up with like, yes. a denim bucket hat, which is, like, what the fuck is he doing? Um, Will Ospreay looked like a drug dealer, not in a good way. Like, he had this giant, I don't know, fa fur mink coat or some shit. Like, bro, it's summer in Japan. Why are you wearing fur? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm looking at the picture now, I'm pretty sure Ishii is wearing the, the exact same thing he wore in Dallas a couple years ago, or very something uh, very similar. I'm trying to find it, but uh, <laughs> uh, Rock Hard Juice Robinson literally raided uh, Ed Leslie's like closet <laughs> and came dressed up like the Disciple, Yeah, which is dope. <laughs> um, everyone looks pretty good, you know? Uh, Zack Sabre wearing the shorts. Well, you know. Him and Pat McAfee, they have that in common. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know who looks really fly is Sonata always looks good yeah. um, when it comes to, like, dressing up and stuff. No, Ishii is – I see him. I see him there. He is in a white getup, and that is a different fit than what he wore to the United States, which, you know, is good because you don't want to be caught dead wearing the same thing to the press conference, you know, multiple years in a row. Yeah, but I, I feel it's very similar, though. No. It's not actually. It's not? Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, look at Fale. He like quasi dressed up. Remember, he just wore like a t-shirt and like some gym shorts. Like he he was on that Kevin Owen live that one time. Yeah, kind of wearing the 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 pay me pin me or whatever pin me pay me shirt or whatever. <laughs> some shit like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I I listened enough to hear what everyone had to say or not listen, but like read enough to kind of get the gist of it. I was just like, you know, it's a G1 press conference, 28 guys. Like, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into the two nights that we had this past weekend. So the show or tournament kicked off on July 16th on Saturday opening night. So we had some undercard matches that we'll kind of just run through here. Um, so the show opened up. We had the New Japan Japan debut of the former strong open weight champion, Filthy Tom Lawler, accompanied by his team filthy stablemate Royce Isaacs. He defeated Kosei Vegeta three minutes and forty eight seconds. Uh, so real quick, just kind of thoughts on. I know it's only you know a sub four minute match, but thoughts on Filthy Tom's first time in Japan. I think a few of the things that Tom Waller is doing um, is kind of just getting the Japanese audience that might not be familiar with him or acclimated to his character and style. You know, that's what exactly what he's doing is getting them acclimated and, you know, kind of at the beginning of the matches doing the whole like undressing of the jean shorts to reveal the fa jean shorts, you know, and the stomping and everything. And then when he, I don't know if you noticed this, like he, he, one of two things is going on. When his music is going, he either has a terrible, terrible sense of rhythm and doesn't know how to clap on cue to get the crowd to clap with him, or, and this is what I think it actually is, he's being a troll and he's purposefully clapping at weird rhythms and offbeat so that the Japanese audience cannot clap with him 
and like he's trolling them. And yeah. I, I actually think that is what he's doing. Yeah, whatever he's doing, it's, it's working though, because the crowd seems very into him and want to clap for him, and they like when he's doing you know his little uh, Fargo strut and you know the whole you know big pants reveal gets a big clap. So yeah, I thought you know Filthy is making the most of these undercard matches. I think the crowd is taking to him very quickly, and he looked really good here in this opening match with Fujita. Biggest pants reveal in New Japan since Okada. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought this was fine. I thought, like, you know, Fujita kind of having that amateur background meshed, like, decently with Tom Lawler and was, like, a good, you know, first opponent to kind of, like, dip his toes in the water. And uh, at first I was like, oh, shit, this might be really good. And then it devolved into, like, a squash, which is exactly what you expect here. Tom looked great. Royce, I think it's doing, Royce is doing a good job being sort of his uh, corner man and his, you know, backup and heat or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I'm not really watching, and I know you're not, but I'm not fully watching all of the uh, undercards for the rest of the tournament, but I definitely wanted to, you know, watch the first couple nights to kind of get a feel for how guys like Tom Lawler and Bad Dude Tito and Royce Isaacs, you know, a lot of those, like, uh, L.A. guys, how they sort of, you know, acclimate to Japan. Yeah, same here, y'all. Going, I, I did watch both undercards this weekend, but going forward, I'm probably not going to catch many more undercards. Like you mentioned, yeah, definitely want to kind of catch to see how some of these U.S. guys are doing um, in Japan. And one thing from this match, we did learn the name of Filthy Tom's version of the Kamagoye. So on Strong, he's been starting to use that reverse Kamagoye knee to the back right. of the head. But we learned here that he calls it the nasty knee on the brain, also short for N- N-K-O-T-B is uh, his uh, name of his finisher. Okay. <laughs> so let's move on to the next match here. We had... Like, uh, why don't we... Why don't, like, if we're going to do that, then why don't we just call it the Knot? <laughs> you know? Like, why? Because it's Philly Tom. He has to, to make it complicated. Yeah, it's super complicated. <laughs> uh, so after that, we had uh, TMDK's Bad Dude Tito and Jonah defeating Oiwa and Yano, 6 minutes, 16 seconds. Also, this was a preview for the next night where we would see Yano and Jonah go one-on-one. Yano, very scared of Jonah. Uh, I also thought Jonah and Bad Dude Tito um, did well here in their six minutes, and also I feel like the Japanese crowd has taken both of those guys also. I mean, how can you not? Look at him. Look at him. He's huge. They're huge. I'm going to call Jonah. <laughs> Jurassic Jonah. The Mastodon. Oh, man. But yeah, both guys look really good here. We had a question here from MJ Does PR. It says, G1, my first time seeing Bad Dude Tito. I'm officially on the bandwagon. Would you like to see TMDK as a New Japan proper faction? What's that? What's that? Uh, that mean? It's like if you weren't here for my struggle, don't don't be here for my come up or some shit like that. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 the bad dude Tito bandwagon to you. <laughs> PR. You weren't there for you know the West Coast Indies, and you weren't there for blood sport. You you couldn't be bothered to use your you know New Japan World subscription to tune in on Saturdays and Fridays to New Japan Strong, then, you know, you don't get to it. You don't get to be part of the bandwagon. It's on the <laughs> cast, you know? It's like Jonah, it's like Noah's Ark, you know? Doors closed, B. 
I will say I, I've been on on the bad dude Tito bandwagon for a while now. This guy is freaking awesome. Like you talk about like a Steiner brother, like reinvented. Like this is bad dude Tito, not Braun Breaker. Bad dude Tito. Was this not a dude that like the first time I saw him in Indianapolis at Bloodsport, I was like, yeah, I like this guy. Yeah. And that, that was even, you know, back in the day. Me and Jeremy, we went on to the boat two by two, doors closed. You, know, <laughs> you want to get on? No. Uh-uh. It's not happening. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so both guys look good here. Yes, I would like to see TMDK um, brought over along with Mikey Nichols and Shane Hayes is another faction. I think the more factions, uh, the better. And especially since, you know, a lot of the other factions have kind of stale. You know, we've had a bullet club for a while. We've had chaos for a while. So, you know, obviously United Empire is rising and getting popular. So I think bringing over TMDK, Team Filthy, I think would definitely, you know, add some great things to the mix. Yeah, I'm down. Then uh, after that, we had the House of Torture, Evil Show Nudro defeating Dave Finley, Jado, and Tamatanga. Some more previews there. Then we had uh, the Bullet Club team of Bad Luck Fale, Chase Owens, Shoes Robinson, and Kenta defeating the Suzuki Goon team of Lance Archer, Taichi, Takamichi Noku, and Zack Sabre Jr. They're really pushing the interactions between Lance Archer and Bad Luck Fale for their yeah. match coming up this week. Yeah, and they faced off in another tag team match the next night, which we'll, you know, briefly mention. But um, I don't know if you recall, when they were in the same G1 block uh, a couple years ago during that first really breakout G1 of Lance Archer, I was a pretty big fan of that match at the time. No one else seemed to like it, but, like, I don't know what it is. I just really like Archer and Fale as a pair. I think that they work well together. I think, like, there's a, you know... uh, movie monster sort of appeal for yeah me. and um you know I, I, i'm not gonna sit here and tell you to go watch these matches but i enjoyed every time they were in the ring together and talking shit and all that stuff you know yeah well it's just two big huge guys throwing lariats shoulder blocks trying to take each other out and i think with Fale, you know he's not going to do anything he can't do and so i think yeah. with, with him and archer i think it you know something about it really works and then archer obviously He's a little bit more high flying. He's going to do some of the dives at some point to probably knock Fale off his feet. Um, so it just makes for yeah. a fun match. Yeah, you said Fale's not going to do anything he can't do. Well, we know Archer will do things he absolutely can't do because <laughs> I've seen him bow himself like two times now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that one should be fun. And that's coming up on night three. So yeah. Then after that, the last undercard match, we had the Chaos team of Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, and Yoshihashi defeating the LIJ team of Bushi, Shingo Takagi, and Tetsuya Naito. Uh, so always a, oh, go ahead. Also, always a fun when you get uh, that kind of chaos and LIJ mixing it up. If you, Yeah, if you want to call it that, I just call it regular old wrestling. <laughs> Same old shit. <laughs> no, um... For me, these like undercard previews are sort of like, you know, the the appetizer or like the vegetables before the main course. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna peel back the curtain here a little bit. I was talking to Sam. Said this man watches the main card first and then goes back and if he feels like it, rewatches the undercard. <laughs> that's like that's like basically like dipping into tiramisu and a steak before you decide to eat those Brussels sprouts. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's, yeah, again, your, your dinner before, your dessert before dinner. Yeah, bro. What the fuck are you doing, bro? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, no, I'm just playing. But um, yeah, no, actually, I did enjoy this Chaos and uh, Lij undercard match, and it's probably the only thing I'd say. Like, if if you wanted to watch something that was good on the undercard, that's probably worth checking out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the tournament matches now. So we had the first tournament match after the intermission from the C block. The ultimate weapon, Aaron Hanare, defeated the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, at 11 minutes and 11 seconds. So big upset here. We know usually on the opening night of the tournament, we get some kind of upset victory here. And as I was making my picks, I was like, you know, maybe this will happen, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't go with it, but... Lo and behold, we got the big upset here. Aaron Hanare, his first G1, and picking up a big win over the ace. So in our group chat, we have a me and Jeremy are in multiple group chats together, but we have one with uh, our buddies here in the Florida local area. And uh, Rich Latta, what's up, Rich? I know he's listening. He, he was trying to, you know, posit different scenarios that would suck, that would make the, like, G1 be bad. And he was like, we about to see Hanari beat Tanahashi on night one. <laughs> and like James La- James Boyd, also One Nation Radio, was like poking fun at that idea because they both thought it was so ridiculous, like it can't happen. And I was like, bro, that could easily happen. And I was like, I've seen Tanahashi lose in big spots in the early parts of G1s for many, many years. Last year with Chase, uh, the time with Sonata, the time with Yano. The time with Ishii, when Ishii was literally an under guy, like a guy that was like a joke. In 2013, like on the second night, he beat Tanahashi with that fucking Lance, that Ishii driver, whatever it's called. So I've seen this dude like lose in a lot of like spots where people are like, no way this, I mean, bro, Chase Owens happened just last year. You know what I mean? Right. And I feel like Chase is almost a little bit lower or maybe the same level as an RA. Uh, I, I feel like. No, I would disagree with that, but I think you. I think we can take Hanare as a character a little more seriously. But I mean, I feel like Chase Owens has kind of been higher, you know, up on the totem pole for quite a bit longer than him. If that makes sense. Yeah, I guess a little bit push further with the KOPW and tag team title stuff. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like this didn't shock me at all from a standpoint of like we've seen this happen a lot. Plus. No one wants to believe me, but I think Tanahashi is on the downside. You know, I think they're definitely going to still, like, run main events with him at some point down the road here and there. But I feel like we're in that Twilight Nagata phase, you know, Mm -hmm. where Nagata started getting phased down. I feel like that's where Tanahashi is. Um, People don't want to hear it, but I think that's what's happening, especially with some of those comments that we, uh, we didn't even really go that far in depth with. But during that um, business call, and they were talking about bringing in new blood and you know getting guys started younger. I mean, how are you going to make room for guys to start younger if you got guys that are older on top? So I wasn't surprised by it at all. As far as the match goes, I, I wasn't really that impressed with the match. I thought it was just fine. I, I might have expected a little bit more here. Um there was the point where Tanahashi like hit him with the standing high fly flow and then, you know, was getting ready to go for the second one. And I was like, well, you know, I, I guess I was wrong. I guess Hanari's not going to beat him. And then Hanari got the, the, the knees up and I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I guess miracles can happen. So. 
Yeah, I thought it was a good, solid matchup. Um, it didn't really hit you know any kind of G1 height. I think, obviously, the goal of this match was to put over Hanare, and I think that's exactly what Tanahashi did, kind of showing off the you know the power of Hanare. He's been using that um, full Nelson, I forget what he calls it, but his version of the full Nelson, he's been using that in matches, and he uh, finished Tanahashi up with the uh, Streets of Rage, his um, like Samoan drop-type uh, finishing maneuver. Um, so getting him over, getting his finishers over, getting over his strength, and getting him a good start to the tournament. Yeah, there's some things here. I think Hanari has a good array of different, uh, you know, like signature moves that look pretty devastating, some, like, really cool stuff. I mean, he's got, like, the toe bottom. He's got that rugby, you know, spear tackle thing. He's yeah, got the, the rampage. The rampage, streets of rage. He's got a lot of different, like, cool things. And then he's, you know, mixing in some of the Muay Thai, which I'm a big fan of. There was some sloppiness here. I'm not going to lie. And it wasn't from Tanahashi. It was from Hanare. Um, you know, maybe that's to be expected for him being in a big spot like this for the first time in like what feels like years. Like, yeah. it feels like the last time he was like working singles matches that mattered, they were against like Ishii in like what, 2017, 2018. Yeah. And he's still rocking his uh, old gimmick with the Brown. Yeah. So. Um, but you know, good on them for putting over Hanare. I'm fine with it because at the end of the day, Tanahashi's like kind of like Suzuki in a certain sense. Like he's gonna be untouchable. I mean, he could eat three pinfalls in this thing and walk out and be totally fine when it's all said and done. I'm not advocating for that, but you know, um, it's sort of like a damn if you do, damned if you don't. People have been complaining for years and years and years that they don't push Hanare, they don't give him opportunities. When are they going to, you know, what was the point of making him X? What was the point of making him be this mystery guy? And he's just a pin eater in United Empire. And people complain, yap, yap, yap. You know, they, they waited too long. And then the moment they actually do something cool and fun with him, they're like, hey, mess with our Tanahashi. <laughs> Honestly, I haven't <laughs> seen too many people complaining that Tanahashi lost. I saw some, you know. Yeah. But, you know, also, I will say this. I haven't seen too many people talking about the G1 in general. Mm, yeah, definitely. I would say the chatter is definitely a little bit down compared to previous years. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a part of it as well. But, um, you know, I'm fine with them giving Hanari the win because ultimately, like, did it last? Like, just comparatively speaking, last year, did it help Chase Owens to beat Tanahashi? Yeah. Did it give him a little bit of boost? Yeah. Did it lead to anything significant long-term? Not really. Is Tanahashi still Tanahashi? Is he still, you know, winning titles, putting on great matches, doing main events? Like, for the for the immediate foreseeable future, yeah, I think that that's all still going to be the case, so. Yeah. I think with Tanahashi, too, he's, just, he's already crossed that line of, like, superstardom. Like, you're mentioning, like, these losses are not going to hurt him. You know, there, there used to be a girl that used to go to my church uh, who was from Japan. She just recently moved back, but... When she saw me take a picture with Tanahashi, she was like, oh, she's not a wrestling fan, but she knew who Tanahashi was. She's like, oh, my gosh, you took a picture with Tanahashi? Like, how'd you do that? Like, she was, like, marking out just for Tanahashi. He's not even a, a wrestling fan. So just his status in Japan is, like, you know, kind of like that pop culture superstardom. Like, people know who he is, even if you're not a wrestling fan, and he's going to be all right. Yeah, like Brad Pitt, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same thing. <laughs> Uh, we have a question here from MJ Does PR. He says, why do you think Kanara has bulked up so much for this tourney after coming back from COVID looking pretty shredded? 
Um, that one's hard to say. I mean, could that be an indication of something? It could have been like a decree for management, you know, we want you to be bigger. We want you to be badder, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It could just be, uh, who knows? Maybe he's in the middle of a bulk cycle. Maybe he um, hasn't been taken care of. I mean, it could be a, a, a myriad of different things. I don't really know. but uh, And I, I couldn't sit here and say if I even think that that's an indication of anything as far as management or booking is concerned. I don't really know. But uh, I, I don't think it uh, is something that doesn't suit him you know, as far as how he looks, I think he's uh pretty good shape. And, and, you know, I think as the tournament goes on, we'll see a little bit more of what he has to offer. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised too, if it was a management thing, I've, I've heard people talking about like with Fale when him losing, right. losing weight, the company would be like, no, we want you bigger. <laughs> Stop losing weight. So right. That, could, that's what I was thinking of too. Yeah. So it could be a situation where like, they're like, all right, we like your shredded, but we actually like you if you're bulkier. <laughs> so it could be a situation like that. Yeah, it could be that. But you also, I mean, we've lived through it. I mean, we went through a pandemic where people had so much time on their hands, nothing to do. People decided to get into shape. You try to go on to eBay. You couldn't find any dumbbells that were even like priced adequately. Shit was wild and everyone was getting in shape. And now it's 2022. People went back to work. The masks came off and, you know, some people let themselves go. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what has happened here, where he's not actively training as a full-time fighter in t- in the jungles of Thailand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that, I think both things are plausible, and we don't really know. But um, I, I think he looks good in the tournament so far. I mean, I'm glad that they did the surprise, at, at least at this junction of the uh, tournament, you know? Yeah. Let's move on to the next match. We had a match from the D block with Will Ospreay defeating El Fantasmo 15 minutes and six seconds. Great match. Um, Very, very good. Uh, This is one of those things where, and I feel like we're going to be saying this probably about both guys, to be honest, but especially with them being paired up, you know, a lot of people kind of said like, yeah, this night didn't feel like G1. But Osprey and Phantasma was awesome. And I'm not going to be surprised if, like we previewed last week in the block, that Phantasma and Osprey and Shingo and those guys just continue to put on great performances in D-Block. The story here was awesome with them having so much history with one mm-hmm. another. Will Osprey being the guy that kind of advocated for um, a babyface ELP to leave Rev Pro to be brought into the fold of New Japan and potentially join say chaos and instead he kind of turned his back on him and went bullet club very similar to what happened with robbie eagles at the time and um you know the various different wars that we've seen them have with one another especially in super juniors super j cup and you know osprey kind of defecting from his own promote his own group and forging his own path as a heel and so it's like you have two different heels that are you know, kind of crossing in the night, have a lot of history, but have been kept apart for quite a while. And this is a different kind of match than the ones we've seen from them in all the other, uh, the J cups. And I mean, it was sort of like the way I liken it is like El Fantasmo, who's always had the frame to be a heavyweight, but like just now kind of testing out those limits, figuring out what works for him. If you notice, a lot less uh, Tom Fulry. And I, I saw some people kind of commenting, like, 
yeah, we didn't get like dickhead, you know, ELP. And I'm like, yeah, because he's punching above his weight class and he can't <laughs> fool around with these fuckers who can knock his head off. And that's right. what we saw in this match. And you got, instead, you got Will Ospreay, who's at the top of his game, who's been in this division for years and years and years at this point, and is a bruiser, essentially, a guy that, he's an assassin, a guy that can fuck you up. And as good as ELP was on this night, one mistake cost him everything. But the, the, the wrestling, the chain grappling, like the aerials, this, everything was on point. I've been critical of the matches they've had in the past. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. Most people will disagree. Cage match disagrees, but I don't care. This is the best match they've ever had together. I like this vastly more than anything I've ever seen from them whether it was Rev Pro, whether it was the Indies or in the Juniors. This is the best version of Osprey and Phantasmo that I've seen, and I don't think it's the best match that they possibly could have. Uh, very impressed. I like this match a lot. Yeah, this was a 15-minute sprint, and I almost felt like Osprey's attitude was like, I'm a heavyweight, so I'm going to outstrike you, but I could also still do the high-flying stuff, so I'm, I'm going to outfly you also. And we saw that right from the opening bell, he hit the big drop kick and then immediately hit a Sasuke special right from the go. And from there, big sprint with getting all these crazy high spots, you know, reverse Spanish flies and Hurricane Ranas and uh, ELP does his Asai moonsault. And we're getting all these kind of great high flying. And then also the striking, you know, ELP would try to, you know, outstrike Osprey and Osprey would kind of laugh it off. You know, Osprey's had some time as a heavyweight now he's bigger and bulkier and really they're putting him over as a you know a, a deadly striker especially with you know the hidden blade and the chelsea grin and stuff like that so um osprey had the advantage when it came to the striking so there's a lot of really cool uh counters really high pace action here and then it all came down um to the end here where you mentioned that kind of one split second uh where you know elp he, he hits a sudden death gets a near fall he goes for the CR2, Osprey uh, blocks that. And then he hits the hook kick, uh, and then he goes for the Oz cutter, but then ELP turns it to a backslide, and ELP thinks he got the win. He's arguing the three with the ref, and in that split second when he's arguing with the referee, Osprey comes out of nowhere, hit and blade the wrong way, knocked this man out, and got the win. Yeah, and I mean, I one thing I really liked about that was, well, two things. Number one, I don't know if you noticed, but he kept going for the Oz cutter quite a lot. This was like the third or fourth attempt of him trying to use that move, which, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys that tries to add hidden meaning to something that's not really there. But it, I did find it interesting that he wasn't trying to go for, like, say, the, uh, what's his major finisher? The uh, Stormbreaker. Yeah, it wasn't going for Stormbreaker, and he wasn't even really looking for Hidden Blade too much. For whatever reason, he was trying to hit him with that uh, fucking Oz Cutter, which I think might have something to do with like what you talk about. Like anything you can do, I can do better, and I can beat you as a junior with my junior finisher. <laughs> right? You know what I mean, you know, we've, we've seen Osprey beat young lines and junior younger guys with the os cutter still i mean it's very rare that he uses the os cutter but usually for a lower level guy he will beat people with the os cutter right and that's what i was thinking was kind of going on there like i don't think uh a commentary was like harping on it or you know that it was it was an on the surface level sort of storytelling device but i feel like it was kind of brooding under the level there mm -hmm. and 
the whole time, like, I think uh, ELP sort of knew that, and that's how he was able to catch him in that bridge at the end there. And then, like, at that point, Osprey is just like, okay, fuck it. I've tried it three or four times. It's not happening. Hold this. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and, and pinned him off that. And it's like, that wasn't even, like, the regular uh, Hidden Blade. That was, like, the reverse one, like, which I guess you could argue in some ways is more damaging. But also, that's not his primary weapon of how he beats guys with that move. So part of me is like, damn, like, <laughs> he beats you with like his like alternate version of his secondary <laughs> finisher. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, it kind of tells me that like ELP, at least as far as it comes to Osprey is concerned, has a little ways to go. But the match was really entertaining. And like, I definitely want to see them wrestle again, which you go back to the audio and listen to the last major match these guys had. and I wasn't really saying that, honestly. Yeah, I think the last match, ELP was super into doing his shtick and the low blows and the, the back rakes and the the ha-ha cheating kind of stuff. But here, it, it was all go. It wasn't even just that. It was also the flow of the matches that they've had in the past. It was very stop and go. It was very disorderly. There wasn't a lot of... Uh, I don't know. They just felt very discombobulated. Like there was great spots, like a lot of really cool athletic stuff, but the in-between just didn't make sense to me. Whereas this match was the polar opposite. There was tons of great moments, great, you know, spots, but everything in between flowed perfectly. There was a reason for everything. It just made sense. And it was a very like compelling, honestly, I thought this match was great. I thought it was match of the night easily. Yeah, had incredible moves. <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely a great matchup here. I went uh, four and a quarter on it. Definitely one of the best matches of the night. That's what I would go as well. So then following that, semi-main event came from the B block. We had the IWGP World Heavyweight Champion Switchblade, Jay White, defeating the Cole Skull Sonata, 18 minutes and 7 seconds. Yeah, so Sonata and Jay White is an interesting matchup. Um you know, I think depending on what segment of the fan base you're talking to, these two individuals can either be extremely overrated or extremely underrated mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, properly rated. But that seems to be pretty rare that you find someone that properly rates both guys in the right context of like what is presented from them and the output that we see them in. Um, it, it seems that most people kind of get themselves in the camps of either highly overrating or underrating these two individuals. And in a matchup like this, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what version of each guy you're really getting. There is a, there is a scenario where you could take these two guys and I'm not being hyperbolic here. You could put them in a G1 final or a Tokyo dome and you get an all time, like five-star classic. There's also definitely versions where they go out there and they shit the bed and it's like three stars. I think we've seen a major match of theirs that like yeah. extremely un- like underperformed. So I was like, I don't really know what to expect here. And for me, this match was a tale of two matches. Like for the first half, it was okay. I was kind of bored. I actually fell asleep during this match. <laughs> and had to come. I did, but I, I caught myself because I was tired and I was like, okay, here's where I'm at. 
let's let's put it in perspective. This match hasn't been bad. It's just been a little slow in the opening because Jay's trying to get heat. We'll come back. But the second half of the match was phenomenal. And it was filled with all the things that these guys do that make them great. And I kind of split the difference between those two different halves of the match. And I'm probably like, I don't know, three and three quarters, maybe four. The match ended up being a lot better than I thought it was going to be. It was definitely a lot better than, I can't remember where it was. Was it like the the, the other time they wrestled? I, I don't know if it was Dantaku or uh, whatever. Yeah, it was one of those kind of like B-level show, I think. But people were hyping that up like it was going to be a major, major match, and it fucking sucked. And this one didn't suck, but it also didn't, like, knock my socks off. But the uh, the tail end with all the reversals and everything, that stuff was superb. So, you know, I don't know. The match was good. Jay cheats. He keeps his heat, gets the two points. You know, maybe Sam's is right. Maybe he's going to go undefeated in the block. I don't know. Yeah, that, that was my call. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I guess that was your call as well. I think both of you were kind of calling that because yeah. I heard him say that on Jcast as well. Yeah, um, but I have very similar thoughts to the match as you did. Yeah, I thought the beginning was slow. You know, there was a lot of powder with Jay. He was, you know, teasing the crowd because they couldn't chance Sonata, so he's, you know, messing with the crowd. He he makes Sonata hold the ropes open for him. And, then, yeah, it was kind of, you know, more character work towards the beginning. And then... Does, like, does, doesn't that kind of make him a hoe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I think I think the intention of him holding the ropes was like I'm not really afraid of you, so whatever you say, I'm still gonna beat your ass. But it didn't come off that way. It came off like like uh, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it came off yeah, kind of makes makes it all kind of bad there. Um, but you know, I, I feel like with the, the camps that you were mentioning earlier, I feel like it's kind of a, an overcorrectness from both groups. Like yeah. Jay, both guys will have performances like you mentioned where it's like three star special and so the people that hate them are like these guys suck they went out here had a three star match blah 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 and so every time they wrestle that camp will kind of oversell how bad they are and then when they have a great match or a very good match then the other camp's like oh these guys are incredible you know they should be pushed to the moon and they kind of go over the top of it sometimes uh, but yeah, there, there, there's that balance here, and like this was a very good match. Like you mentioned, it was a tail two match. It was very slow in the beginning, a lot of character. Jay getting heat, and then yeah, the second half of the match really picked up with more of a faster pace, more of the reversals. You know, Sonata going for the skull end, trying to hit the Muda Moon Salt, and then you know Jay is a great counter wrestler, so he had a lot of great uh, counter stuff that uh, Sonata was doing, and of course you had uh, Gato out there as well. Uh, there was a really great near fall towards the end. Uh, Sonata had, had a great O'Connor roll towards the end mm-hmm. that I thought he was going to pin uh, Jay with, but Jay eventually uh, gets out. Um, then, of course, uh, towards the end there, um, Jay's able to um, he hits a eye poke and gets out of the, the skull end and then hits the uh, the blade runner and gets the win. Yeah, and they kept teasing uh, skull ends into blade runners back into skull ends and so that was kind of like the majority of what we were sort of seeing there at the end like that transition between those two moves quite a bit you know that is the one thing that that both guys are really known for in a certain sense is their ability to counter wrestle and catch guys in compromising positions and pick up victories whether it's you know sonata being able to pick up a big uh you know skull end or o'connor roll or, you know, obviously Jay White catching someone into his finisher from pretty much any angle, which it's almost DDP-esque the way he does it. 
And that was something that worked to their, their favor. We hadn't seen that between the two of them in previous encounters, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and, and, you know, something that I feel like was lacking in previous matches that they really improved on here. Yeah. So then the main event of the show came from... Oh, the- you know what it was? Hmm. New beginning in Osaka 2020. Yes, yep, yep, yep. It's all coming back to me now. 6.11 on Cage Match. <laughs> here's here's uh, the worst rating on Cage Match. 1.0. Awful match. <laughs> it's incredibly hard to watch because it's difficult to watch. Both wrestlers have a style that slows down any match. Now imagine... What would happen if these wrestlers were in the same match with each other? (laughs) There will be something like this. This fight is very long and vicious. I do not understand who can enjoy watching this. Target wrote this on March 12th, 2020. 1.0. Yeah, that's the camp that goes, yeah, too far. And yeah, they they suck wrestling together. (laughs) Like, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a great match, but it it wasn't a one-star match. But well, keep in mind, it's on the cage match ring, so it's probably two stars. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, this match was... What did you go star ratings-wise on, on this match? I went 3.75. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. So then moving on to the main event, coming from the A block, we had the Rainmaker Kazuchika Okada defeating Jeff Cobb 21 minutes and 30 seconds and. Good little story here because obviously this was the finals of the A block in last year's G1. And these guys had a big rivalry last year with Okada getting the advantage. He's 3-1 and one all time against Jeff Cobb coming into this match. So we know there was a lot of history with their rivalry last year and then how things ended up in the, the A block in last year's G1. So that a lot of that backstory coming into this match here. Very, very good match. Uh, You know, like I said earlier, I do think that ELP versus Osprey was match of the evening, but I went the exact same rating, 4.25 overall for this match. So if you were to tell me that you felt this was a little bit better for whatever reason, I wouldn't even argue at all because that's they were about the same quality. And, I mean, we're kind of at this point now where, you know, Anytime Okada and Cobb are in the same ring and competing with one another, you know it's going to be good to great, very good to great. And that's what this match was. Um, built off a lot of the mat, you know, the previous series that we've seen between these two, as well as the, they wrestled in the New Japan Cup this year, right? E, did they? I think they did, yeah. yeah. Yes, they definitely did because everyone was calling for Cobb to beat Okada. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this feels like the fifth match in a pretty, you know, within a one-year span that we've seen between these two guys. And um, I thought it was great. I thought Cobb looked like a beast. Okada did a great job, you know, selling. Um, We saw Cobb do all these athletic feats that men his size normally can't do, you know, the giant high-flying drop kick off the top, you know, from the ground to the top rope, standing moonsault all the offense and catches and throws, you know, and he's almost, I feel like getting stronger. He looks like he, or either that, these guys are just getting more acclimated to working with one another and more familiar because like Okada will jump out of the air and he catches him with ease. And it's kind of scary the way he does it. <laughs> yeah. There was and one, then at the one point oh, where, where he caught him with the spin cycle is kind of out, out of nowhere and just like through Okada. <laughs> yeah. 
And then at the same time, Okada just has found the right trigger points for when to catch this guy off guard, for when there's openings, when to capitalize, and to just use his silky smooth wrestling and his you know technical acumen to get this guy off balance, to get him off of his feet, and to kind of ground him and you know be able to do exactly what Okada does best. And you know there was that oh there was one moment where Okada gave uh, he reversed something and then gave him a spinning. Uh, uh, tombstone and it was fucking scary. Yeah, it, it was because Cobb hit Okada with a tombstone and yeah. then he hauled him up, but then Okada was able to reverse it over and then he had a spinning tombstone on Cobb. Yeah, that was pretty gnarly looking. Yeah, and I mean, there's always that anything you can do, I can do better sort of element. I know we said that earlier during the cop or during the ELP Osprey match, but that's kind of always been an MO of their feud. Well, it's kind of an MO of Okada and Cobb as well which seems weird because they look so opposed to one another, like from a physical standpoint, Mm -hmm. but there's something about like the lofty status of Okada that drives Cobb to do all these things that aren't necessarily out of his wheelhouse, but like to just kind of prove like I'm a beast and I can still do all the shit you do. Like, (laughs) and I don't know if that's his undoing or what it is, but yeah, he wasn't able to beat Okada here, but, the match was outstanding. I think I liked most of the original trilogy, especially their G1 match last year, a little bit more, but still fantastic. A great main event for this first night. And, you know, this was truly what I would call like a good G1 match or, you know, a, a you know, a deserving G1 main event. Yeah. Um, and I thought Okada, he, did, he had a good game plan here of targeting the head. You know, he had hit the DT in the ring and the DT to the outside. I felt like a lot of his offense working on the head and neck of Cobb, several uh, money clip attempts throughout the matchup here. Uh, but it all led to the end where he busted out the Anoki Inziguri to the back of the head. And then he also busted out that uh, Emerald Flosion type maneuver following it up with the Rainmaker to uh, put Jeff Cobb away. So, yeah, great matchup. I also gave it the same rating as ELP and Osprey, four and a quarter. Um, so I think, yeah, both matches were on, on the same level. I would say ELP and Osprey was probably a little bit more fun because they were doing more flips. <laughs> but uh, this was a very great match as also, also, and great story, uh, great psychology, great moves. Um, so another fun match in the Okada-Cobb rivalry. Nice. So let's move on to G1 Night 2, July 17th. Uh, the evening opened up with David Finley and Yoshihashi as they defeated the team of Team Filthy, Royce Isaacs, and Tom Lawler. Uh, the next matchup of the night, we saw Bad Luck Fale and El Fantasmo defeat the Suzuki-Gun team of Lance Archer and Takamichinoku. As we mentioned, continued previews between Fale and, and uh, Lance Archer for the rest of uh, or for the match that's coming up tomorrow and we even saw like a pretty big stare down and you know face off between these two guys post match leading mm-hmm. to that preview um third match of the night we saw aaron hanare great Ocon, jeff cobb and will osprey they, they defeated the hose of torture i mean the house of torture <laughs> dick togo evil show and Yujiro takahashi and you know what i thought this was pretty fun actually yeah it was a fun matchup because you know also you got two heel groups here but you know, Empire doesn't really cheat that much. And so it was interesting just kind of seeing how they would gel with the House of Torture 
like we said in the past, when House of Torture, when all four of them are in the match, it's definitely more bearable because the cheating is not as egregious. Um, right. So, so, yeah, I thought it was a really fun matchup. I love United Empire's new matching black and silver gear. They, yeah. They look super raw. They came out here like, we're going to stun on all y'all. <laughs> yeah, they, they looked great. Yeah, they looked great. And then post-match, you know, um, Great Okan did his uh, Japanese, you know, promo style without the mic. And he basically was like, yo, Hanari Cobb, Osprey Okan, we're about to run the G1, son. Like, yeah. that's what he said. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, at this point is, let me ask you, is, is Great Okan the most over member of United Empire? Because it kind of feels like maybe he is. Yeah, the crowd was seemed like really into his like post match speech. Like they were like clapping the whole, like getting like really into it. Like when he was doing his whole thing, bro. Like this is the most like uh, anti hero somebody has felt since like the early Ingobernable days of like Naito. Like yeah, this man's out here saving children <laughs> and then chilling with porn stars. Okay, you know he's like out here doing like really good things and then out here doing debaucherous things with no regard for anything or anyone. Like, you know, I'm going to go out here and, and do some voice work for anime in the morning time. And in the evening time, I'm going to walk around with, you know, you know, just getting into whatever the fuck I want. You know? <laughs> yeah. Going to ride a, a mechanical penis. Yeah. And give no fucks about it. <laughs> Yeah, o- Ocon lives a, a wild lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, who, bro? When we started this podcast, and we we're like, "I like this Oka dude." Nobody could have known he was going to be a great wrestler, but we had no idea. Yeah, that this man was going to be living the life that he lives out here, wilding, bro. And, and then remember, remember, like when he was in Red Pro, we're like, "I don't know about this Ocon gimmick." Yeah. <laughs> And I gotta say, I've turned around on the pants. I I, I thought I liked like the, the pants are better. What? Oh no, I, the pants are not better. I like the. You like, I still. Yeah, I still like the tights better. I was on that train, but I don't know. The black and silver pants looked super. The black hard. and silver pants like kind of slap. Yeah, I was like, okay, I, I'm yeah. digging the pants now. But that was like the most, um, like, uh, modernized version of his pants gear that he's ever worn the other ones have been very like you know old dynasty sort of looking you know what i mean very traditional yeah oh one last thing before that reminds me and i've never said this on the podcast but i think about it every time i see sonata first off sonata has no new gear for the g1 and anytime sonata does not have new gear you know that he's not going far (laughs) in the tournament okay Uh, that's the first thing the second thing he's like am am i am i winning this no. Yeah. All right. Let me pull out this pirate gear. <laughs> well, you know what they do? <laughs> pirate gear. <laughs> Let me get this glam rock Sonata gear out of storage. <laughs> um, you know they don't even tell the guys whether they're winning or not night after night, right? Like mm-hmm. that's something they find out when they're like showing up to the building. But with Sonata, it doesn't matter. He knows in his heart of hearts he's not going. <laughs> he knows. He knows he's not going far. But this is the thought I've been having ever since last year when he unveiled this gear. And you notice that he keeps the same gear for a whole year, generally speaking, and yeah. he doesn't change it up Dude, ever. Man's wise with his money. He's like, why am I going to buy new gear multiple times a year 
Well, I can just wash this gear and keep it all year <laughs> long. <laughs> you got like Will Ospreay trying out custom gears on like warrior wrestling shows that never see the light of day in New Japan. He's like, he does things that like, you know, he, he buys gear specifically to like test run on like local indies. And then, and then you got Sonata who's wearing the same shit for years. But anyways, the thought that I had about this gear is what the fuck does this have to do with his character in any way? Have you noticed that about his gear? Yeah, nothing nothing to do with the whole Cole Skull gimmick. His gear looks like the kind of designs that they put on pottery and plants and <laughs> dishes when you go through the like uppity like section of like Target. Do you know what section I'm talking oh, about? Oh oh yeah. With the wood. <laughs> yeah. With like yeah. And then they have the cool, trendy, like, with the down arrows and the, like, gold lines and shit. Um, you know, I've heard it on TikTok referred to as, like, chuggy, like, millennial style. That's what his shit is. He's wearing stuff that belongs on, like, chuggy, millennial, like, pottery. <laughs> that doesn't mean shit. And he's like, he saw it on TikTok. He's like, that's a cool design. Put that on my pants. And I'll wear the shit out of it for a year while I don't win anything. <laughs> Oh, Anyways, man. moving on. Uh, <laughs> the Bullet Club team of Chase Owens and Jay White, they defeated Jado and Tamatonga. Now, this was a match on the undercard that I was very interested in. And, like, this whole thing with Tamatonga and Jay White, we were talking about it last week. Yeah, I thought I was kind of into it, but it was, you know, it's been a little while since we've seen them kind of interact. So I didn't know how much it was really going to, like, matter to me. But then once they're in the ring together, I was like, oh, shit, this is dope. Like, this isn't quite, like, Tamatanga being, like, uh, you know, betrayed and is a man seeking vengeance. It doesn't feel quite like Sting versus the NWO, but it kind of feels like Luger versus the NWO in 1997. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, and he's coming for that ass. And he's going to rack you, Hogan, on Nitro, 100. And it doesn't matter what anybody does. Like, I think Jay White is in trouble when it comes to Tamatonga. Yeah, like, this rivalry is very interesting, very compelling. Like, their interactions are just so great. And, like, you, you want to see Tama desperately get his hands on Jay because they've, yeah. him and Tangaloa and Jado have been dealing with so much heat from the Bullet Club and beatdowns and, you know, getting dragged and, Every time they get so close to getting comeuppance, they kind of get knocked back down. So it's to the point now where you're you're ready to see Tamatonga just fully unleash on Jay White. And the audience is so into it. I mean, they're, like, clapping way more vigorously, um, even though they're not allowed to, like, chant and cheer necessarily. Like, you hear the, the audible gasps when, like, Tamatonga's out there. They've got something. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to fuck it up. I'm not going to sit here and be like, Tamatonga's going to be the next big thing because they could easily mess this whole thing up but so far from the beginning of like the beat down and the beat out of the group to now they've done a pretty great job and uh you know i know that i'm really high on the like roster versus filthy feud as being like feud of the year but i feel like tamatonga versus and well god in general but like even more specifically like tamatonga versus bullet club that might be a feud of the year candidate by the yeah. time this is all said and done. Yeah, because with this G1 match, you you got to assume something more is going to come in the fall as well, especially as whenever Tangaloa gets back from his injury. Like, it's going to continue for the rest of the year. 
it's funny. There's so much discourse in different areas of the fandom talking about a Bullet Club Civil War. I, I don't give a fuck about a Bullet Club Civil War, but you know what I do care about? Tamatonga trying to get in that ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's inevitable. Yeah. It feels like this man is going to have his revenge, you know? Yeah, he's going to get a big win, and it's going to be awesome. Um, next up, so the um, final match of the undercard, we had the chaos team of Goto and Okada teaming up to de- – oh, and Tanahashi. Sorry about that. Six-man tag action. They defeated the LIJ team of Bushi, Sonata, and Tetsuya Naito. Five minutes, 50 seconds. And, uh, you know, again, like we mentioned, Anytime you get a mix of these guys together, it's going to be pretty good. This one was a little on the short side. And that brings us to G1 action. Yep. So we had the first match coming from the B block with the hometown hero of the night, Taichi, along with Miho Abe, defeated Tomohiro Ishii 15 minutes and 21 seconds. And I love this matchup. Oh, my gosh. Like... First of all, you just had the English commentary just doing a great job kind of explaining kind of the history and rivalry between Tai Chi and Ishii. And, like, this just got real. From the opening bell, like, Ishii was in, like, Tai Chi's face before he, like, took off his ring jacket and stuff like that and, like, wasn't ready. He was like, not playing around. And, like, as soon as, like, Tai Chi, like, got his ring gear off, like, they went at it. You had Ishii calling Tai Chi by his shoot name at one point and, like, they were just, like, talking so much smack to each other, and then the, the forearms and the kicks and the strikes and the suplexes. Oh, my gosh. Like, this match just freaking ruled. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, the, the nice thing about it, too, is that Taichi and Ishii are both sort of in this role in the B block where it's highly unlikely that either one of them are going to go deep or win the block necessarily you know what i mean yeah so when when you have a face-off between these two guys with no points on the board so far it's the very first you know matchup for either guy in the tournament anything can happen because you know we don't know they're pretty much slotted in very similar positions and as you mentioned jeremy i mean there's a lot of history between these guys in fact there's more history then they even really let on in commentary. And we know that because in the past, Chris Charlton has kind of laid out the full history between these two guys. And we've seen the matches between these two guys in previous G1s and in various other uh, matches. And they've had supreme chemistry with one another. That was one of the reasons why last week when I was asked what some of my like dark horse matches or most anticipated matches were, this is one of the ones I named because, dude, I mean, Ishii versus Taichi, given where they're at at this stage of their careers, there's no way it can't be good. The only complaint you might make about this match is that it's like, it's your typical never style match and it's exactly what you expect. But you know what? Sometimes exactly what you expect is exactly what you want. <laughs> yes. They gave us exactly what we wanted. And those guys went out there and they had a fucking war. This is Definitely on the never fight, you know, uh, strong style fight of the year, you know, candidate list already. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very impressed with both guys. And though, again, the whole time I was watching it, I just didn't know who was going to win. I mean, because you could make a compelling uh, argument for 
either one of these two guys to be deserving to pick up the two points. And that's kind of what the G1's all about. You know, some of these other matches where, you know, it's not like Jay White versus, you know, I don't know, Dave Finley, for example, and it's like, oh, it's a big upset or, you know, it's an expected win for Jay, one or the other. This is kind of a, a crossroads match for these guys where it's like, I don't really know who's going to win. I can't tell, and I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. And, yeah, they had me biting on some of the near finishes. There's that at the very end when, when Ishii had Taichi up for the uh, Brain Buster, and he had him up there for a long time. I was like, oh, he fucking – they got me, like, in any Ishii match, there's this point where he gets a guy up, you know, and there's plenty of times where he gets the guy up. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's going to be a suplex, or maybe it's going to be the Brain Buster, or maybe it's going to be – a reversal, but there's a point where he gets him up there long enough to where I'm like, okay, game over. Before he even drops him, I'm like, all right, my dog won it. That's it. It's over. And they got me to say that, and then they reversed it. I was like, you dirty bastard, <laughs> dude. Uh, Ishii's uh, super uh, top rope superplex is starting to get so scary because every time yeah. it looks like he's like, getting ready to lose a guy, then he's like falls backwards and it drops him it's a crazy spot he never does i know he never well, he never does but it looks like it's going to be there was a one match with chingo where he did i don't know if it was like selling what he, he did like drop chingo remember that no i don't remember at all yeah i think i don't know if it was last year's g1 or some match they had last year where he like dropped chingo in the middle of the superplex uh mm. but yeah that that spot's always so crazy looking and then what what got me is you know normally Tai Chi only does one dangerous suplex, but in this, yeah. in this match he did a second dangerous suplex and added a bridge to it. I was like, oh, he's gonna get him here. I I popped for that near fall. Um, and there were several moves where Tai Chi was kicking out at one and popping right back up and, and getting back in Ishii's face. And you can tell he was really serious because with the with the ripping of the pants, like he didn't do the whole normal. Taunt that he does when he rips his pants off, he like immediately just ripped them off and threw them in Ishii's face. He did very little of the you know shenanigans and you know just healed him that we've even even like in this phase where Tai Chi has become an awesome performer. We you know more and more different people are becoming fans of him. Even in the midst of that like phase, he still does a lot of the like heelish stuff that he used to do. He still has a playable side. He still has a heelish chicken shit sort of side. None of that was on display in this match. And it was kind of like what you talked about uh, at the beginning, Jeremy, where Ishii got up in his face while he was taking off his, uh, you know, his uh, entrance gear. And he was like, fuck that. Bah, fuck that. Bah. Like, you're not going to play games with Tomohiro Ishii. I'm here to bang, baby. <laughs> and like, that's what he told him. And like, there was this look on Tai Chi's face. It's like, all right, let's do it. And these guys went out there and they had a fucking war. Um, yeah, this, it was so awesome. And then, yeah, towards the end there, uh, Tai Chi, he bust out the, the sumo elbow, followed up with yeah. the black Mephisto and put Ishii away. Bro, that was the best of that sumo elbow that he's landed so far. Like in the past, he's landed it and it's looked eh, okay. But this one was like, oh shit. Like he blasted this dude. And like, you know, I'm not one to like advocate for CTE, but like if you can do that, you know, a little more snug and safely, like I'm all for it. It looked great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, Matt. What'd you go on this? 
Uh, four and a quarter, four and a half ish, somewhere in that nature. I'd probably go four and a quarter. Yeah, I went four and a half. Yeah, this match just, I don't know, I just loved it. The, the pace, the speed, the strikes, the near falls, the selling. Like, now, we talked off air, and where we're going to disagree, this was not my match of the night, but I think for you it was. Yeah. Yeah, fun matchup. And I will say this. I Overall, we're going to talk about the low point here in a second, but uh, I did like B-Block second night. Or, God, what? I'm so used to talking about B-Block. Right. I like the second night of G1 better than the first night overall. Yeah. So now moving on to the second tournament match, we had action from the A-Block, and this was Toro Yano defeating Jonah by countout nine minutes and one second. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's Yano, and with Yano, anything can happen in a G1 and to anyone and you don't know who it is you know he's going to beat some guys but you don't know who they are and unfortunately in this case it was Jonah I thought this was um you know I just I judge Yano matches a little different in a G1 than I do everything else I just kind of put it on a on a Yano scale and for for the like early parts of it I thought it was fine it was kind of fun things were going blah 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 looked like Jonah was about to beat this guy and then it kept going and then it kept going and then I was like wait a second and then like Yano was kicking out of shit and then I was like oh my god I don't know how it's gonna happen but it's gone past four or five minutes yeah and, and now I was like and it's going too long and now I know for a fact Yano's gonna beat Jonah and for me when he did beat him I wasn't surprised by it at all because There's just, I don't know. I don't have the numbers. I'm not Chris Samson. I can't tell you, like, you know, I think that'd be an interesting thing to look at is, like, the match length of of Yano in a G1. Like, I feel like just taking a guesstimate that when it's shorter, Yano usually uses. And when it's longer, his percentage of wins start to go up. That's what I feel like just based off my experience. And uh, that's what happened here. And I was like, fuck, he's going to fuck this dude. And what's funny is now, we talked about it last week, Chris brought up that really great point that this dude does not have another tournament match for like 11 or 12 days. And now he just came off of a loss in his debut match for New Japan in Japan. And now he's iced for like essentially almost two weeks. I feel like this is maybe, in my opinion, Gato's attempt to do one of those comeback stories because the blocks are so short. Mm -hmm. You can't have someone go on a three or four match losing streak and then come back and win the block. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or look impressive. But in this case, you can. You can have him lose to the worst guy in the block. You can ice him. You can maybe have him lose the next match. And then, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. (laughs) But still, you can have him have this early portion where he's not doing well and then maybe come back and be a threat down the stretch for Okada. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely think it could be also like, you know, just trying to forget the loss in a way. Like it's so long that he's wrestling. Like it's a whole like week or whatever passed by. You kind of maybe forget about the Yano loss and he comes out, he comes out dominant. Um, But But it feels, it feels hard to forget a loss like that. You know, like in your debut, I feel like that they made a pretty big deal about it. Yeah. 
But yeah, it definitely could be what you're saying to try and set up this uh, comeback story. So yeah, towards the end, they were brawling outside, and uh, Yana was able to hit a low blow on Jonah and Bad Dude Tito and get back in the ring before the 20 count. Uh, so Yano got the win uh, by count out there. So yeah, you're, you're Yano. So if you love Yano, this is probably a great match for you. The whole Yano comedy uh, shtick, being afraid of Jonah and running away. Jonah finding, you know, two rolls of tape in Yano's uh, trunks. and kind of, So you got the whole, you know, Yano dog and pony show and then the, the count out win. My, my main wish coming out of this, like I have no, um, I'm not worried about Jonah. Or anything like that, you know. Tons of legends: Kenny Omega, Kota Ibushi, Tanahashi. Guys like that have lost to Yano and G ones. Not a big deal, you know what I mean? Right. So I'm not worried about Jonah. I'm not worried about his performances and the rest of the G one or anything like that. I think he'll be fine. My one main um, concern coming out of this is like, are we going to get Yano matches that go? over five minutes for the remainder of the tournament. I'm hoping we don't. I'm hoping they start relegate him down to his more traditional sub five minute Tom Fulry, whatever. Well, the, um, the problem is though, you know, normally we would, we would get five block matches in a night. And for most of these nights, we're getting four block matches. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah. That, yeah. And that's making me concerned. I'm also kind of wondering, like, I don't know. I, I mean, like, it's just because we've never done this kind of format with this few tournament matches in this span of time, you know, are they going to go, are they going to do a thing where a couple of guys kind of lead the pack and everyone else gets, you know, eliminated fairly quickly? Are we going to do something where everyone's sort of in play up until the final, you know, um, portion and a block is the interesting block when it comes to those questions because of how many monsters and dominant forces are kind of there plus Hokata. And I'm sort of wondering like, is Yano going to be become the guy that gets eliminated very fast and just becomes like the spoiler or is he going to be in the mix down the road because they'll be doing something that's sort of, quality based amongst that like parody amongst everybody and i'm worried about that i want i want like i've never actively cheered against yano in a g1 because i've never actually had to worry about him being in play but with the this whole setup i'm just kind of like let's get these next two losses in in quick succession or next three like let's just do it like boom 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 get him the fuck out of there yeah that's what i'm hoping happens yeah me too we had a question here from our buddy Imp. He says, I don't think there was any better way to debut Jonah, but I may as well ask if you can think of one. A better way? Yeah. Yeah, the better way would be he comes in here and he fucks up Toriano with no, like, obstacle or, or hesitation or anything. Yano tries all of his tricks, and not a single one of them works. He's too smart to get caught by Yano, and he's too strong for Yano to be able to throw him or toss him or anything, and he fucking squashes the dude with a splash off the top rope in sub-three minutes. That's what I wanted from Jonah and Yano. I'm fine they did this, whatever. I mean, it's kind of classic Gato booking, but, like, yeah, I think it would be much better to have Jonah just beat the fuck out of Yano. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I, that's, that's, if I was booking, I would have had Yano kill this guy, uh, squash match, hit him with that big splash off the top. Yano kill this guy. Have Jonah kill Yano. Uh, hit, hit the big <laughs> I was splash. Like, what, what are you saying? <laughs> no, no. Have Yano kill. Have Jonah kill Yano. Hit that big splash off the top. And you know, for a strong viewer, you know, Jonah's been undefeated this whole year on strong. And Jonah's a former. North American NXT <laughs> champion, sir. <laughs> like, so, like, they just kind of, like, threw his New Japan win streak to the side here to do this whole thing with Yano, which I get people are going to lose Yano and whatever, but, yeah, I would have I wanted Jonah to have a big, strong debut, and then he can eat some losses later on in the tournament. Well, you know, there's also that part of it where it's, like, everyone loses to Yano at some point, so... Yeah. Get this out of the way. Maybe this will afford him to win some of those bigger matches against, him, like a Jeff Cobb, or a Fale, or a Lance Archer. Right. You know, so that stuff's on the table still, at least. Unless yeah. we're overestimating how they're going to book him, and he's going to go on the like lower end of bracket, and this is just a taste of things to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, so let's move on now to the semi-main event of the evening, which came from the C-Block. We had Zack Sabre Jr. defeating Kenta, 21 minutes and 33 seconds. Another match that had a lot of great backstory and history to it. Uh, Zack Sabre Jr. was in Noah when Kenta was in Noah, and Sabre was kind of a, a young boy when Kenta was on top and knowing that great run he was having, you know, big main event guy. So Kenta here kind of still seeing Zack Sabre Jr. as a young boy and was trying to treat him like a young boy in this match. And Sabre trying to prove that, you know, he's no longer that same young boy that Kenta messed around with in Pro Wrestling Noah back in the day. Like this is, you know, Zack Sabre Jr., submission master, two-time New Japan Cup winner, coming to, you know, win this G1. Yes. Um, and we've seen matches between Zack Sabre Jr. and Kenta since Kenta got to New Japan, especially in the G1. Um, and almost every year that they faced off with one another, uh, it's been one of the better matches of the G1. And, you know, for my money, this is... I don't know. I, I I don't know if I can sit here and say it's the best one, but this one really just resonated for me for a lot of reasons. Like this felt fucking brutal. I mean, brutal. Kenta was beating the fuck out of Zach. And I don't know if it's because of what Zach said at the beginning and his cocky, like sort of cheeky comments and demeanor or whatever it was, but like, yeah, and then also just Kenta just has a mean streak in him and like sort of does still see himself as that guy from Noah and like sort of sees himself as the senpai. And Zach at the beginning of the match was like, I'm the senpai. And like, 
Kent is like, oh, fuck, no. I'm going to yeah. show you who the senpai <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, like, Kento's like, make me chanko. And then Sayra's like, no, you make me some vegan chanko. <laughs> you make me vegan chanko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, highly violent and very, very good. And, you know, um, Kent is great, but there's also kind of always been that thing since he came back that, like, to New Japan where people are like, he's not the Kent of old. And there's a few guys that seem to be able to like, light that spark and, and bring out that better side of him, especially in these like later years. And Zach seems to be one of those guys that always, you know, performs well with him for whatever reason. And yeah, this match was awesome. The way they executed it and towards the tail end, not only was the violence that was on display very, you know, compelling, but like the tail end finish where like Kenta just kept fucking up Zach and had Zach beat on like three occasions. Yeah. But he was looking to embarrass because Zach got under his skin. He was looking to embarrass Zach Sabre Jr., the quote unquote best technical wrestler of the world. And, you know, Zach is kind of coming off with in terms of like, major singles matches he's coming off of a pretty big disappointing loss to claudio Casanoli during uh the aw new japan forbidden door pay-per-view so he's kind of like looking to redeem himself he's not quite on that same high that he was in the first quarter of the year coming off of the uh the the new japan cup you know victory mm-hmm. and i think kenta kind of saw him as a mark as somebody that he could you know, really establish himself against in this G1, start things off strong. But those early comments from Zach were kind of in his head. And he was looking to embarrass Zach, and he hit him with the fuck up by Zaku. Well, before which, that, he had there was the, the running, the, the knee that Saber ran into. Uh, he, oh, that's right. He, Zach, he, Zach had him in trouble and was, was like tying him up and all this stuff. And then he went to go for a single leg, and Kenta hit him with this fucking knee. Very, you know, uh, we've seen this spot quite a bit in the past with like Nakamura used to do it a lot. Nakamura did it against uh, Takayama and he did it against uh, Sakuraba more famously where he goes in for a single leg, they throw the knee and it just levels the guy. Well, that's exactly what happened here. And he leveled Zach. Yeah, killed him. And then just killed him. So Zach's laid out, goes to the corner. And when Zach sits up, boom, by Zaku knee. And for anyone that doesn't know what, what, what that is, we're talking about the running B plus knee, the one that uh, you know that Brian Danielson stole from Kenta, has him beat one two, lifts the dude up by his hair, and then I'm like, oh shit, this is that point in most matches where it's like he had him beat, but he had the visual pinball, but he let his hubris get the best of him, and now it's going to create an opening for Zach to beat him. Then he goes to the corner, and while Zach is sitting up. Boom, hits him another by Zaku <laughs> That's even worse. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh God, he killed this dude. Okay, that's pretty definitive. That's a Noah finish. Let's go <laughs> home. One, two, picks the dude up. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, I see what they're doing now. And then he goes to uh put the dude into a, um go to sleep, and something happens, adrenaline, I don't know, but fucking Zach just like kind of wakes up pops out of that uh, that that move and puts this dude into a knee bar, then transitions it to an arm bar, just cranks on the shit, and, like, out of nowhere just gets, you know, gets the tap on Kenton. I was like, hell yeah. Playing with your food, 
playing <laughs> around with, with this killer. You know, he had this dude beat, and that's what you get, Kenta, you know? Yeah, Saber did not go to sleep. He he woke up. Yeah, he yeah. Woke up, he woke up in the middle to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, grabbed that leg, wrenching <laughs> on it. Then he uh Kenta was trying to throw palm strikes to break the hole, but then Saber caught his arm, had all his limbs tied up, and uh tapped this man out. Bro, and it happened fast. And it was very, very, very reminiscent of the types of finishes that we saw Zack Saber doing during the uh New Japan Cup earlier this year. And so part of me is like, you know, I don't know if Zach's been in the block, but we might see him go on a, another classic Zach run. Maybe, dare I say, the best Zach G1 run of his career so far because he seems to do really well in these New Japan Cups but never seems to be able to put the pieces together to have like a classic run in the G1. But with it being a smaller block and you look at the field of competitors he's against, you look at this victory in the first night, and he's got Naito on the final night. I think we might see Zach going like a pretty compelling run of matches during this this uh, tournament. Yeah, and also another note here: um, Kenta had the three-one lead on Saber uh, in their history of matchups. Mm. So this was only the second time. This one, the second uh, win for Saber. The last time he beat Kenta was in the 2019 G1. Wow. Uh, so it's a big win for Saber, and yeah, I think this means, like you're saying, like a great things for Saber to come in this tournament. And uh, similar to uh, 2019, Saber is saying that when he wins, he doesn't want to wait until the Tokyo Dome. He wants to get his title shot in October when New Japan will be returning to the UK in his homeland. Doesn't plan on getting a briefcase or doing defenses. He wants his big match with Jay White in the UK. Well, when they when he said that, that's how I knew he's not winning. <laughs> so do yourself a favor. You got money, and, and you're playing on you know my book or some shit. Don't put it on Zach to win the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, let's move on to the main event now. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's my match of the tournament so far. I'm four and a half on that. Okay, I went four and a quarter on that one. So we're, we're a little flip flop with Ishi Taichi, but. Both great matchups, and I can definitely see the argument for both. Cage match agrees with me. Mm. Did you notice that Grapple hasn't put out night two for the voting? Yeah, I've been frustrated because I, I want to like lock my ratings in on, on Grapple, and I keep refreshing, and it's not up there. Yeah. I need to tighten up. Punk asses. <laughs> uh so the main event here from the D block, we had rock hard juice Robert. <laughs> Bro, he, he says it so high <laughs> Rock. <laughs> we had rock hard juice Robinson defeating the dragon Shingo Takagi 21 minutes and 38 seconds. Seen a lot of uh, mixed reviews about this main event. What do you think about it? Oh, man, this match, um, yeah, I thought it was really, really good, actually. I think I'm kind of in that um, that camp of individuals that thought that the match was really good, but that the, uh, the finish was what really bogged down the match for me. Um, Juice is a guy, I've always really enjoyed his work, but more specifically, I think he's a guy that shines during G1s and puts in his top efforts. And I don't know if you noticed, we've kind of been in the past 
at different periods where we kind of felt like Juice was becoming complacent. We've been a little bit uh, critical of his physique, but he is in fantastic shape. Yeah, he looks and, incredible. Yeah, he looks incredible. And there's a lot of questions coming into this match surrounding him, surrounding his absence from Japan, surrounding the new character and gimmick. You know, we hadn't really seen him work uh, in this gimmick as a heel in this company on this kind of level before. And I still think he's maybe sort of figuring that aspect of it out. But I thought him and Shingo went out there and they had a hell of a match. In fact, I thought that this was trending to be a four or, you know, slightly above match, basically, in terms of ratings. I thought Shingo looked great. I thought they worked really well together. I didn't think it was maybe necessarily quite as good as, say, like the first night's main event. But it wasn't that far off. The two things that stuck out to me as being detractors, why I think people might not have liked the match. Maybe I'm wrong here. For whatever reason, the audience on this night just did not give anything to Juice Robinson. Then again, if you think about it, there is, and I, I know we're leaning on this a little bit, so I don't want to be one of those like bad faith argument type guys, but he is a heel. He was a fan favorite. He has turned on the audience, and they might actually hate him, and their silence in the match could have literally been the fact that he's getting heat on the character, and when the cheering and the voices come back, we might figure out how like betrayed the audience feels about Juice's turn. That's a real possibility. There is also the possibility that because there is very little clapping and reaction to most of what was going on that they might not just give a fuck about juice at this point it might take a little bit of time to readjust and get fan investment back because it did kind of feel like they might not care that much about juice that's the first part the second part i don't know what the fuck happened at the finish but they took a great match and it felt like there was two or three botched segments at the very very end there and Pretty much nobody knew what was going on. The performers, the audience, Red Shoes, the commentary team, everything seemed to be very befuddled and confused, and then the match just suddenly ended, and the crowd was not happy. And they took what was spanning out to be a great match and turned it into a just pretty good match. Yeah, I definitely agree with the two points you brought up. Those are the two things that really hurt this match for me. Um with, you know, every other match, you, you've had the, the crowd clapping really, you know, you, there's an energy. I know people kind of joke about the clap crowds and you can't really tell anything, but you can tell when people are, are clapping harder, when there's gasp, when they're, when they're into somebody or into a match. Like, we've kind of learned the patterns in the last two years of kind of how clap crowds react and how whether or right. not they're into a match. And with this main event, like you are saying, I... I didn't feel any energy from the crowd. Didn't seem they really cared about this matchup. And so for me, that kind of made the match kind of dull. And I mean, you already don't have vocal reaction. So the, now you're not getting the clapping reaction or any, any kind of gasp. And it's like, man, this match just felt like it was dragging. And I was like, the work was very good. Like there were some great counters. It was very hard hitting. Like they were doing a lot of good stuff in the match, but it was really hard to get into because the live crowd wasn't getting into it. And yeah, and then the, the, the finish there, like you're saying, I don't know what happened there where um, at one point, like Juice like pulled Red Shoes and it seemed like 
maybe there was supposed to be a ref bump or Juice was supposed to do like a low blow or some kind of cheating with Red Shoes being pulled. And then he went for the, the rock slide and couldn't get Chingo up. So then he had to go back to the Pulp Friction to get the win. And it just was all kind of goofy and kind of fell um, flat there. And I don't know if this has to do with maybe Juice coming back too early from the appendix injury. I also know that it was very hot in that building. So I don't know if he got knocked loopy or he's just super hot and just kind of, you know, discombobulated towards the end there. But something happened there at the end that messed up the finish. And I don't know if it was miscommunication or, like I said, Juice kind of being out of it. Because, I mean, even after the match, I don't know if it was selling or not. But, I mean, he was laying on the mat doing his promo for a while and breathing pretty heavy before he got up and, and finished the promo. I think that could definitely be a part of it, uh, no doubt. I mean, I, I would be hard-pressed to commit to the idea that the reason the match suffered overall was because he was gassing. And, I mean, I'm not saying that's impossible, but I just I don't know if I would buy into that theory. I might be inclined to think that at the end it could have been miscommunications or it could have been a result of, you know, gassing out in the tail end for yeah, sure. That's yeah. that's definitely a possibility. But um, I don't think that's why people weren't reacting. I don't think they were seeing something that we don't see. In fact, I think oftentimes the fans at home get to see more than what the audience can see. We have a better vantage point. And I did, you know, I thought the work was fantastic. I didn't think that that match was boring whatsoever. I was very much into it. It's just, uh, you know, it wasn't getting the kind of reactions you would you would expect from a main event, and then the the ending was so weird. The other thing too is like, um, what's the new finish of Juice that they seem to be building up? The rock slide. Okay, so it seemed like they were maybe leading to a potential rock slide finish, but then they ended it with pulp friction. But that was the second pulp friction of the evening. And- right. That's what. That's why I said it seemed weird. Like because he he got he, yeah. could, he couldn't get Chingo up for it, and then it was yeah almost- he couldn't. Get- he couldn't get Shingo up, but Shingo couldn't get him up for whether it was the uh, last, the dragon or the made in Japan that he was going for. I know some of that was uh, definitely by design because juice was reversing it, but at the end he was trying to get juice up. And I don't know if juice wasn't maybe posting enough or what the case was, but I think that's where the, the uh, ref bump was supposed to happen and then it didn't happen because he couldn't get juice up. And I don't know whose fault that was. It could have been both of theirs. So yeah, so that, that, that whole thing seemed weird. I mean, definitely one of the stranger finishes to a G1 match that I can remember in modern years. Yeah, it, it was really weird. And overall, yeah, with the, the crowd reaction, it's kind of disappointment because obviously Shingo had a great year last year. It was former world champion. Um, and you got juice fresh off the heel turn. He has the U.S. title captive, you would think there would be a little bit more heat or fan investment here, um, but there wasn't for whatever reason. I don't know if it's just this city. I guess we'll find out going forward if other cities feel the same way about Juice. Um, but, yeah, could have been better, but overall it, it ended up was a very good match. I only went three and a half on it. Uh, I think that's a little harsh. I still went three and, a quarter, three, and three quarters on this, but at the end of the day, the uh, winner is still the IWGP United States 
heavyweight champion. The International Wrestling <laughs> Grand Prix United States of America champion. <laughs> Rock hard Juice Robinson. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he cut a promo in the, you know, post-match, talking about how he's the champion, yada, yada. And then uh, the crowd just gave no reaction to anything he said, and they was like, fuck you. <laughs> he, walked, he walked out. <laughs> and that felt very genuine, which is what I like in my wrestling. So, <laughs> Oh, man. We have a, a couple questions here. First from Paul Elliott underscore 316. More likely to win all the remaining matches, Jeff Cobb or Shingo Takagi? Um, neither. I don't think either of them is winning the rest of their matches. If if I had to give you one that was more likely, maybe Shingo. Um, yeah, I would say probably Shingo because Cobb, even though they have push Cobb I think he hasn't really had that main obviously last year's G1 was a big singles push but he hasn't like won a singles title besides a never title and Shingo was the world champion last year so I, I think at least if I was booking it would be Shingo who's the one that's going to get more wins than Cobb um, then less commission 7252 says I enjoy this new attitude of Juice Robinson as he's annoying funny and cocky heel the thing I like about Juice is that the style he wrestled hasn't changed much. So my question is, do you think God, do you guys think that show should have kept his style when he was in chaos if House of Torture had never existed? I do. I I definitely think that show should be wrestling. I don't want to say exactly to his style, but I mean he should be showcasing what he's capable of doing. I feel like there's a way to do that as a heel. Uh and in the same token. I kind of think Juice should change his game a bit as well as a heel. I don't think he should wrestle the same way he wrestled as the flamboyant one. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a healthy mix of tweaking the gimmick so that, yes, you, you can get over as a heel, but not completely abandoning what brought you to the game in the first place. So that wraps up uh, the talk of the, the first two nights. So the current standing, so in the A block, we have Kazuchika Okada of two points, Toriano of two points, and then Lawler. Okada and Yano leading the way. <laughs> um, yeah, and then Lawler and Cobb, Jonah, Folly, and Archer with zero points. And that's because some of those losers, guys. Losers. <laughs> fucking losers. Haven't wrestled yet. Uh, Folly, Archer, <laughs> losers. Um then in the B block, we have Jay White and Taichi with two points, and Ishii, Sonata, Tamatanga, Grant O'Connor, and Chase with zero points. In the C block, Aaron Hanare and Zack Sabre Jr. with two points, Tanahashi, Goto, Naito, Kenta, and Evil with zero. And then in the D block, Osprey and Juice with two points, and then Yoshihashi, Shingo, David Finley, ELP, and Nujiro Takahashi all with zero points at this time. So coming up this week, G1 will pick back up uh, tomorrow, night three, on Wednesday, July 20th. So on the undercard, we have... Oh, go ahead. I say we just go over the G1 matches. I mean, I don't... Do you see anything on any of these undercards that's even worth really discussing or mentioning? I don't... Uh, probably tag matches. Yeah, I mean the, this first night on on night three, uh, Badu Tito and Jonah versus Royce Isaac and Filthy Tom. That's that one could be kind of interesting. 
yeah, that'll be interesting for all you strong lovers out there. <laughs> uh, besides that, yeah, just kind of you're saying kind of multi-man kind of stuff. Um, so that moving on to tournament matches. So in the D block, we'll have Yujiro Takahashi versus David Finley. From the B block, Tamo Tonga versus Chase Owens. From the A block, Lance Archer versus Bad Luck Fale. And then the main event from the C block, Hiroki Goto versus Tetsuya Naito. Yeah, interesting night. Um, you know, Tamatonga versus Chase Owens, that's not quite him versus Jay White, but there's definitely that Bullet Club uh, aspect there. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the first step in his quest to get revenge. Yeah, kind of like he's, he's working his way up the Mortal Kombat ladder of Bullet Club guys. Right, and as you just mentioned, um, oh, you know what? I keep doing this to myself. I keep thinking that guys that are wrestling on the same night or in the same block, I'm just such in that mindset, so <laughs> never mind. Yujiro um, versus David Finley, that's one that's, uh, I guess, winnable by either one of them. I would hope that David Finley picks up the win there, but uh, you just never know because it's G1, but uh, that's not not really one that I've got earmarked as a high mark of the evening. Yeah, I would really expect... Finley to, to get the win there. Well, you know, you never know. Yujiro hits that big juice. He beat Kotobushi <laughs> last year. Yeah, that's true. But Finley has a shillelagh now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lance Archer versus Bad Luck Fale, you know, that's a, a match that we've seen before. I enjoyed it. I love when big monsters collide, and that's what we're going to get there. Don't expect that one to go long, though. Yeah. And then and I, I'm, I don't know. Who do you think is picking up the win there? Who won the last time they wrestled? Was it Archer? I, I think it was Archer. I'm gonna look, but you can. I I'm going with Archer here on this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, but it's just tough. G one, you just never know. Yeah, I mean, either guy like this is a fifty fifty throw up match here. Like either guy could win, and there's a good reasoning for either guy to win. But I feel like with Archer coming back first G1 in a couple of years, the, the AEW rub. Um, and I do think he's going to eat some losses in this block. So I think this is a match that he needs to win. So they've had two matches in the past. In 2018, they wrestled in the first round of the New Japan Cup and uh, Bad Luck Folly beat Lance Archer. And then last year, or I'm sorry, in 2019, Lance Archer beat Bad Luck Folly in A Block a block action. Both matches were like around 10 to 11 minutes. So if this went near 15 minutes, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. Same here. It's, yeah, it's going to be 10 minutes of these guys throwing lariats, shoulder blocks, trying to out monster. The other should be, it should be a fun match. And Archer will do a moonsault <laughs> and hopefully not <laughs> land on his head or, or he's going to walk the ropes and do some crazy shit. I don't know. Yeah. Do a springboard senton dive. See, they fucked up. They should have put Archer and ELP in the same block. Mm, yeah. Dueling rope walks. Yeah. Uh, then the main event, Goto and Naito. Um, this match, I think, it can either be... Like very a, good or very mid. Uh, yeah, I think it could be mid or it could be great. Like, if yeah. Goto comes to play, like, it's a big main event... If both guys have their working boots on, like this could end up being a really great main event. But I mean, we've seen Go. I mean, Goto wrestled Tanahashi uh, a couple months ago, and it, it was just kind of 
fine. It was there. And so, again, if we get that Goto and we get a Naito who's more into, like, storytelling or showboating in this match, it it can end up being not the best main event. I've seen a motivated Goto and a motivated Naito, and, and a lot younger than they are now, still go out there during the G1 and just have average matches. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... But it is a main event, so I'm sure that that will put some added pressure. Overall, this night doesn't necessarily look like one that's uh, going to blow you away. But there's there's some good stuff here. You got the Tamatonga story, and then you got the monster match. So if Goto and Naito put their working boots on and really are motivated, this could be a surprisingly good evening. And uh, that'd probably be my pick for match of the night, honestly. Yeah. So moving on to night four, Saturday, July 23rd, with tournament action from the C block, we'll have Zach Sabre Jr. versus Aaron Hanare. So the two leaders of the C block right now. Then the D block will have Shingo Takagi versus Yoshihashi. And the semi main event spot from the A block will have Toroyano and Kazuchika Okada. And then the main event will be from the B block as. Tomohiro Ishii takes on Switchblade Jay White. Yeah, so Zach versus Hanare is a little interesting because, like you mentioned, it's the two leaders there. And, you know, anytime you have two guys that are kind of like streaking at this point of the tournament, it's always kind of interesting to see how things shake out from that point going forward. Um, I think Aaron Hanare's like winning streak stops here, probably. <laughs> And uh, Zach probably picks up the win there. Yeah, I'm assuming that, yeah, Sabre's going to tap this man out. Um, Shingo and Yoshihashi, that's one that we've seen in the past that's kind of always surprisingly good. You know, um, last year wasn't that, you know, two years ago was like that Yoshihashi renaissance period where he was putting on, like, vintage career performances. We didn't get so much of that last year, but maybe... You know, he taps in and gets a little bit more of that this year. But I, I'm assuming this is where Shingo gets into the W column. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very disappointed if Shingo lost this match. How pissed will you be if Yano beats Okada and becomes the point leader of A block? Oh, my gosh. That that would be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm guessing Okada wins. But, you know, here's the funny thing. Yano is typically known to beat... The point leaders of blocks as opposed to just the regular guys he usually loses to the regular guys and beats guys like okada and guys like jonah i'm not putting it outside of the realm of possibility that he does beat okada here and then loses the rest of the tournament yeah because you can tell a story here of yano like yeah being hot in the beginning of the tournament beating jonah beating okada it seems like he's on a streak and then going forward yeah then he runs into trouble It'll be like in the next match. You'll be like, you're probably wondering how I got here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then the main event, Ishii and Jay White. There's a lot of history between Ishii and Jay White. We talked about it on the preview show and how Ishii always seems to have Jay White's number. Uh, Most recently, we saw last year um, Battle in the Valley for the Never Openweight title of Ishii uh, beating Jay White. And then in the last G1 these guys were in together, Ishii spoiled Jay White, stopped him from going to the finals. 
So Ishii's just kind of been this thorn in the side for Jay White um, since they've they've been in the company together. And so this time very early on in the tournament, can you know Ishii once again slow Jay's momentum, or is Jay going to continue his lead and kind of like I was saying last week, go undefeated in this block? Jay White versus Tomohiro Ishii is a match that it's probably outside of Okada Sonata. It's probably the greatest match in New Japan that I give the littlest fucks about. For whatever reason, I don't really like their matches that much, but then you watch them and then I can't like deny how good they are, but like going into them, I very rarely care. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, looking at the evening, I'm like, that's going to be match of the night. It's going to be fantastic. And, like, you kind of have to take your great matches in this G1 where you can get them. So, you know, um, I'm not looking forward to it, per se. It's not like I've got it. I do have this marked on my calendar, but it's not like I'm like, oh, July 23rd, Ishii versus White. But when it actually happens, I'm like, okay, let's go. And I know they're going to deliver because that's what they do every single time. Yeah. Yeah, it should be a great main event. And, again, I'm, I'm going with Jay winning here. Yeah, I'm going to pick Jay, too, which is unfortunate for, you know, Big Tong because he's going to go 0-2, basically, at this point. Yeah. Then uh, night five, Sunday, July 24th, from the D block, we'll have Yujiro Takahashi versus El Fantasmo, so Bullet Club versus Bullet Club there. Then in the B block, we'll have Taichi versus Sonata, in the semi-main event from the A block, we'll have Bad Luck Fale versus Jeff Cobb. And then in the main event from the C block, we will have the ace Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Tetsuya Naito. Yeah, Yujiro versus ELP is interesting, like you mentioned, Bullet Club. But then again, there's always that ELP's coming up from Junior. He's also, you know, the... Uh, you know, kind of the underling to Ujiro's senior position in Bull Club. So that's going to kind of be interesting how that, see how that plays out, you know? Yeah, and it's also House of Torture uh, versus Bull Club also. Um, kind of. You, you never know with Ujiro. He might switch it back, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at this point, House of Torture is still, quote-unquote, a you know subunit of Bull Club, so... Yeah, but he's like that one guy who's got like one foot in, one foot out. Yeah, like we've seen like, him team a lot with Bullet Club guys on undercards when you you don't see like other House of Torture guys doing that. Right. Um, tai Chi Sonata could be great, could be mid. Hard to tell. We'll see how it plays out. Fale versus Cobb is going to be interesting just because two big hosses. Again, A block, the monster block. Mm-hmm. And then Tanahashi Naito. If they come in here giving us that uh, the style of match that we got during this year's New Japan Cup, they can miss me with that. But if they come in here with the style of match that they are known to give us throughout the years, then that will be an incredible main event, especially if it's anything like the G1 match they had two years ago, which was like one of the best matches of the tournament. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I got Phantasmo over Yujiro. I I think initially on paper I I had Sonata over Taichi, but just after Taichi's performance on on his first tournament match, I want him to to go over there. Then I would go with Cobb over Fale, and I would go with Naito over Tanahashi. Did you say you would just go with Cobb or Fale? 
No, as if those... no Cobb over Fale. Oh, I said Cobb or Fale. <laughs> what other choices do you have? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and then you got uh, Naito's going to be Tanahashi, so Tanahashi's going to be 0-2 at this point. Yeah. Jeez. Ref go for the ace. Like they mentioned on commentary, there's been this whole story, you know. In previ- no ace. <laughs> in previous G1s, you know, he would always get, what, like 11, 12 points or whatever. And last few, he's gotten eight points. And now this is a smaller block. And he's, you know. Bro, if if Rich, if 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 uh, the comments he made on One Nation Radio this past week are to be believed, he does want the ace to go to America, yeah. <laughs> to the loving arms of Tony Khan. <laughs> Go ace to AEW. <laughs> no, I, I, I want Tanahashi to stay here. So, Yeah. But, yeah, I think Naito's got, because, I mean, overall, I, mean, I think Naito's going to win this block. So, yeah, I think he's got to get a win here over Tanahashi. Then moving on to next Tuesday, July 26th. From the B block, we'll have Chase Owens versus the Great Ocon. From the C block, Kenta versus Evil in the semi-main event. Lance Archer versus Filthy Tom Lawler. And then the main event from the D block, former partners collide. Rock Hard Juice Robinson takes on the Rebel David Finley. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting here. I mean, uh, we're seeing a few individuals, Great Ocon. Evil, Tom Lawler, they're just now, at this point, night six of the tournament, just getting their first matches in the tournament. So, you know, kind of going back to what we discussed last week with the weird scheduling of everything. And then some of the other guys that we have seen, you know, like Juice and, you know, others, Kenta, quite a bit of time between tournament matches here. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out with the booking and how they integrate, you know, the rests and the layoff periods and whether that's a detriment, whether that's a benefit in terms of performance, it's going to be hard to say. Yeah. But um, the juice Finley match should be a, a great matchup here. It's going to be in Cork and hall, you know, that Cork audience has really followed the story and history of Finley and juice Robinson these guys, former World Tag League winners, former IWGP Tag Team Champions. We really haven't seen much interaction with these guys since Juice turned heel and joined the Bullet Club. So, I mean, this has all the, the history and backstory in making to be a great main event. Well, it's not like Juice turned on David Finley. They had the big send-off in Chicago, and then the next thing you know, Juice is showing up in Japan as part of the Bull Club, and there's no interaction between the two of them. So this is going to kind of be that next natural progression that you would expect between two guys that were so closely linked to one another. I think it's a great uh, main event for you know this portion of the the G1, and for me, that's the most uh, my most anticipated match of the block evening. But um, you know. I'll go on record and say I think night six is one of the I don't mean interesting from the standpoint of like, oh, there's gonna be a lot of classic matches, but from a storyline perspective, this is a pretty interesting evening. You got Kenton Evil, so you got that bull club house of torture thing going on. You got Chase Owens and Great O'Con, and that's gonna be, you know, very interesting, especially with Great O'Con just kind of 
making his first strides into the this year's G1. Mm-hmm. And then Lance Archer and Tom Lawler both kind of being de facto outsiders, but also somewhat familiar. I don't think they ever wrestled each other, but you know, familiar to the New Japan audience. That's going to be very interesting, especially to see how Tom Lawler handles an established, you know, um, monster like Lance Archer and a guy that's, you know, a known commodity from AEW. And then again, Juice and Finley. There's just like a lot of interesting kind of storylines playing out here. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun night. Um, I, I have Great Okan going over Chase. I would have Evil going over Kenta because I feel like Evil is going to be a player in the block this year. Uh, the Archer match, I really want to see Filthy Tom get the win there, but I have a feeling Archer's going to win. Um, and then in the main event, I, I would say probably Juice is going to win over Finley. Nice. Well, what one thing I think we're seeing here is that even though we might not be getting these classic G1 evenings where it's like, oh, night 15, banger after banger after banger. They're doing a good job of taking the meaningful matches from different blocks and making those the focal point of the main events of the evenings. So, you know, kind of looking at the four nights that are coming up, the main event is, in my opinion, pretty much the perceived match of the night from a match quality standpoint almost every single night here. So that's kind of a, a different wrinkle, but also kind of a good indication of the booking as well. Yeah. So overall, yeah, it should be some fun few nights this uh, next week. Looking forward to these uh, tournament matches and seeing how the tournament progresses. What match stands out to you in terms of anticipation most? I think for me, it's probably Tanahashi Naito. Yeah, looking through, I would say probably, yeah, Tanahashi Naito or um, Saturday's Ishii versus Jay White. I figured, yeah, that's probably number two for me as well. So both of those look to be very, very good. And, you know, uh, by the time we come back to you guys next week on Tuesday, um, the standings will be very different. Yeah. Now let's move over to New Japan of America real quick. So we had... Uh, night two of the Ignition Tour on New Japan Strong this weekend in continuation of the Strong Openweight Tag Team Title Tournament. So we had a first-round match with the Stray Dog Army of Barrett Brown and Mysterioso. They defeated the Midnight Heat of Eddie Pearl and Ricky Gibson. I uh, thought this was a, a fun matchup here. Uh, Barrett Brown getting the, the win for his team here. You know, the Stray Dog Army, they've kind of been on a losing streak or, you know, haven't really picked up a lot of momentum since they formed. So it's kind of a, a big win here for Barrett Brown. On commentary, they were saying that Bateman specifically put Barrett Brown and Mysterioso in the tournament for a certain reason. Um, so it seems like we're kind of getting a little bit of push here of the Stray Dog Army. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like they're deserving of it. They've been with the company for quite a while, like since the beginning, and, you know, sort of have paid their dues and they're waiting their turn. So, you know, I definitely agree with that. I I felt like, like you mentioned, the match was fun. I felt like what was presented in the ring was maybe better than the way the crowd was reacting to it, if that makes sense. definitely. Um, I didn't think that we saw as good of a 
showing from Midnight Heat as we had seen previously when they were sort of brought in as, you know, kind of like spotlight talent and that sort of thing. But I thought they looked good here. I thought, you know, like you mentioned, this was fun. And, you know, the outcome was what's to be expected since these guys are kind of like the more staple tag team of the division. Yeah. There was a scary spot with uh, Mysterioso doing the Asai moonsault to the outside, and he smashed his leg right across the guardrail doing that. Um, but it seemed like he was able to finish the match, and he, he seemed to be fine from that. I haven't heard any reports on an injury. But we know we've seen in the past guys like Pack who have like hurt their ankle doing moonsaults to the outside, hitting guardrails. So glad it seems to be okay for now. Then in the middle match of the show, we had Filthy Tom Lawler taking on Bad Dude Tito. So we're starting to see here the Team Filthy and uh, TMDK rivalry starting to start on strong, and we're seeing it play out in the G1 as well, so that's pretty cool. We had uh, Filthy Tom defeating Bad Dude Tito here, and the, the whole story was, you know, could Bad Dude Tito capitalize on Filthy Tom's kind of downward momentum after losing the strong openweight title? Um, it, it seemed like Tito had a lot of filthy stuff um, scouted towards the beginning of the match, and Filthy was able to come back towards the end and kind of use a couple of different finishers. So he, you know, he busted out the the rare naked choke. He used the the NKOTB, and then there was also um, the old dirty deeds that uh, Dean Ambrose slash John Moxley used to do in WWE that he also used to uh, put away bad dude Tito here. Yeah, I mean, um, I totally agree with your assessment of the story and the match and the style and everything. One thing, one reason why I think Bad Bad Dude Tito might have fared pretty well here and stood a good chance to beat Tom Lawler is, like you mentioned, the circumstances. But, you know, Tito has had quite a bit of experience with, like, that blood sport style of wrestling. And so it's not like he's completely unfamiliar with that sort of territory, the style of of wrestling that tom waller does you know what i mean and i right. felt like that's one of the reasons why their styles meshed and why he fared pretty well against him but you know ultimately this was kind of like your get back on the right track sort of match for tom waller and i mean in a kayfabe sense you know kind of prepping him for you know the g1 essentially yeah then the main event of the show was the last first-round match in the strong openweight tag team tournament. We had the Aussie Open team of Kyle Fletcher and Mark Davis. They defeated the Dark Order team of Alan Angels and Evil Uno, 12 minutes and 44 seconds. Uh, really fun matchup here. Aussie Open, just a great team. Evil Uno is a great tag team wrestler, usually teaming with uh, Stu Grayson player uh, Dose. Uh, but I'll see with you know, or Stu kind of doing his own thing now. He teamed up here with Alan Angels. Uh, it was a uh, very fun, very good main event. Uh, Aussie Open hitting the Coriolis on Alan Angels to get the win. Yeah, I thought this was match of the night. Um, you know, for some individuals, maybe particularly those who are less familiar with TMBK or uh even the strong product, they might be more familiar with, say, like the Dark Order from AEW. They might have believed or thought that these guys were going to go through. Um, obviously, kind of knowing at this point that Alan Angels didn't resign with the company is probably a good indication that they weren't going to win. <laughs> yeah. But um, for those that are also more familiar 
with, uh, you know, Aussie Open at this point. Oh, you know, I said TMDK. I apologize. I meant uh, Aussie Open, but obviously United Empire. Anyone that's kind of seen these guys internationally or in Europe or in the UK, they kind of know how great the this team is and that the company has definitely uh, intentions to push them forward. I don't know if they're going to go all the way in this tournament, but I'm not surprised whatsoever that this match was as good as it was or that they picked up the win here. So, yeah, they move forward. They, you know, beat AEW. I guess this is New Japan's comeback from <laughs> the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then, next, this coming up Saturday, July 23rd, we'll have the uh, night three of the Ignition Tour. Main event will be the semifinals in the Strong Tag Team Tournament. We'll have Christopher Daniels and Yuya Uemura taking on TMDK, Shane Haste, and Mikey Nichols. Then we'll have Negro Casas, Adrian Quest, and Lucas Riley against our good friend Rocky Romero, Masca Dorada, and David Finley. And then J.R. Kratos will take on a debuting Jordan Cruz. Uh, this will be another uh, fun episode of New Japan Strong this coming up Saturday. Nice. Well, that's going to lead us into the news. Um, first couple items real quickly. So this past week, New Japan uh, put out posts that they were going to be releasing, which has now been released, a Forbidden Door documentary on New Japan World that is available if you want to check that out. Uh, I did watch this, but, you know, Jeremy, I fell asleep and was kind of bored by this. I, it wasn't what I expected whatsoever. Did you check it out? What, what were your thoughts? I have not had a chance to watch it yet. I mean, from what they showed on social media, it seemed like it was going to be cool, but because usually the documentaries are pretty good on New Japan World. The production's pretty good, but I will say this. Like, it was a lot of old guys talking about the old years of New Japan and WCW and kind of, you know, um, trying to equate that to what was happening here, which definitely was the case. But then at the same time, I want, I thought that they were going to give us like a lot of like backstage insight and preview into what was happening on the day of the show. And, you know, really kind of, you know, peeling the curtain back a little bit or what, whatever, but it wasn't, it was just kind of guys like, Tony Schiavone and uh, William Regal and Sting and people like that just kind of talking about the old days and then comparing it to today. It, it wasn't what I expected at all. And I'm, I actually talked to Rich about this this past week. He kind of said the same thing. I did, you know, in all fairness, I fell asleep, so maybe I do need to go and finish it. But uh, I fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it wasn't what I expected at all once I heard that they were doing this. Yeah. Um, next bit of news, New Japan Strong has announced an autumn attack taping for Las Vegas on Sunday. I actually heard, I didn't realize this, we never covered it in the news, but like Chase Owens was like alluding to this in the media back in like May that New Japan was coming to Vegas. So I guess it wasn't that secret, but uh, for that, uh, the, the date is going to be Sunday, September 11th. Uh, and during the date, CMLL's Mystico among, will be among the talent set to appear. Autumn Attack will be taped at Samstown Live. If you're not familiar with Samstown, that's where ROH used to do all the big, uh, what was that? It's not Double or Nothing. I forget what shows they did uh, there. I think, wasn't it Death Before Dishonor? I, yeah. 
I was going to say double or nothing, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the death before it's honor shows used to be there. Right. And then um, New Japan's Music City Mayhem will be Saturday, July 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fight TV as a pay-per-view. On that show, uh, some of the announced matches uh, in the main event, a no-DQ match between John Moxley and El Desperado. Uh, the New Japan Strong Openweight Championship will be on the line as Fred Rosser defense against Big Damo. Davey Richards will be wrestling Clark Connors. Hiromu Takahashi will be wrestling Blake Christian. Kushida will be taking on Alex Shelley. FTR and Alex Zane will be taking on TJP and Aussie Open. And Shota Umino, Fred Yehai, Yuya Uemura in six-man tag team action against Ren Narita, Kevin Knight, and the DKC. So will any of this be making air as part of Strong, or is this a standalone pay-per-view? This is a standalone pay-per-view, much like Windy City Riot and Capital Collision. Okay, gotcha. This feels more like the show from uh, WrestleMania weekend than either of those two shows. Yeah, the Lone Star shootout, um, just because of the weird timing, because it's a part of StarCast weekend. I think also, I think SummerSlam is later that evening or some other... Uh, oh yeah, it is. Yeah. And then um Rick Flair's last match is the next day. Yeah. So that's a part of that whole yeah, Starcast uh SummerSlam weekend kind of thing. So kind of happening. Are you trying to go? <laughs> trying to go to this show? <laughs> yeah, you're trying to see Roman and, and uh Brock. Oh, you've already seen that match live recently. Did I when did I were, were you not at night two of WrestleMania with Brock and Roman? Did Brock and Roman I forgot what <laughs> That's the main event, WrestleMania. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I totally, dude, that mania. Well, yeah, but this one's going to be the last time ever. We should probably go to that. Mm, yeah. Where Where is it? It's in some stadium in Nashville. Let's go. Let's mm. Get some hot chicken. Speaking of um, Hiromu, did you see he's wrestling Warhorse in some indie for, like, you have to pay, like, $40 to get in? Yeah, I did see that, and that that, that's horrible. horrible. Sounds horrible. We were in a New Japan group, and I like someone shared it, and I was like, "That sounds horrible." And everyone got pissed at me because I said Warhorse is a horrible wrestler. That's because Josh, they don't they don't like when you, you hit the facts. You tell the truth in that group sometimes. Sometimes you, you come. I'll be off, telling the truth, and people get mad. It comes off a little harsh to them, you know. They're, they're not they're not used to somebody you know telling the truth about about what happened in the in the wrestling world. I think it's because we're in text and they don't know how to take my cadence. You know what I mean? Like right. It sounds, it sounds worse than it actually is. But the other day, someone in the group asked about uh, Bob Backlund having, well, they thought he was having shoot, like real shoot fights in Japan. They shouldn't ask that question because it took us down a rabbit <laughs> hole that they were not ready to talk about. Next thing you know, we're talking about Earl Caddick and, you know, Joe Stecker from Madison Square Garden in 1920, and you know, talking about the Gracies and uh, the thing talking that, about the worked nature of Valet Tudo in the 1950s. The thing that popped me this week was when this uh, FTR Zayn match got announced against uh, TJP and Aussie Open. Somebody was like, "What do FTR and Alex Zayn have in common?" And you're like, "They white." <laughs> Aggressive white males. Yeah, white males. <laughs> and bro, no, everyone in the group except you no sold me, dude. I, like, dude, I was literally dying at my <laughs> desk when I. 
Dude, I, sometimes though, I'm in that group and I'll say outrageous things just to pop myself. And people, and like, they don't know that I'm joking at all. You know not, what I mean? Yeah, not at all. Yeah. It's funny. Anyway, so that's going to do it for the news. Uh, and that's going to take us into uh, this week's questions and mailbag. Yeah, so a lot of these questions we had uh, kicked over from uh, last week. So we'll jump into these. Uh, first from our user Puro Poppy. He says, is the returning Kushida the right opponent for Hiromu to finally get his junior heavyweight Tokyo Dome main event? Um, I mean, very possibly, but, you know, if for my money to, to make a long answer, short and concise, that would require the company doing quite a bit of build and investment in both guys between now and then. And I don't know if they post G1 are really going to do that. I think maybe these next couple shows will give us a little bit of an indication as to whether that's even possible. Yeah. Like we, we've talked about this before. It's all, a lot of it is on the promotion and the booking. Can it be done? Sure. Does new Japan want to do it? I don't know. I guess we'll find out when the G1's over and then they have, you know, September until, you know, January to, to, to possibly build something like that. Uh, he also asked, are booking patterns contagious? Because I think Tony Khan caught the triple threat tag title match fever from Gato. Um, <laughs> I mean, possibly, but at the same time, I mean, like Tony Khan's a pretty big fan of like Baba and his booking style. And I mean, you see a lot of that in all Japan in the 90s, so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just happens to coincidence. Uh, I mean, I mean, did he like? Oh, you know what? I misunderstood. He said triple threat tag title, and I was thinking six man tag for some reason. Mm. They never, they never did that shit in all Japan. That's terrible. But you know, that is something that they did a lot in ECW, and he is definitely that's true. Yeah, the three way Paul Heyman. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's not something that was uncommon in ROH in the early 2000s either. So it's it's not like New Japan's the only one that ever came up with triple threat tag team matches. Come on now. Uh, next question here from Pussy Destroyer 83619. Whatever well, you ha- gotta say that with your chest. Pussy Destroyer 83619. <laughs> they say, whatever <laughs> happened to Okado? He became the greatest wrestler that ever lived. <laughs> That's what happened to that man. He became the Rainmaker. Uh, next question from Les Commission 7252. From one to three, where would you put these three on your list? Shinsuke Nakamura, Prince Devitt, and AJ Styles. That is a very tough question. And I guess, are we talking since... Uh, it's a great question, but it wasn't as detailed as it could have been. Are we talking all time? Are we talking just in the pantheon of New Japan? What are we doing here? You know, I guess, I guess all time. I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's, let's say all time. You know, as much as I, it, it pains me to say this, I think I got to go AJ one, Nakamura two, and Prince Devitt three. That would be my exact order. Also, um, you know, for me watching AJ from TNA from the early days to his whole career up until now. I mean, yeah, just full, it's incredible body of work. And so, yeah, for me, AJ would be one of the knock more than Devitt, which I mean, all three guys are great, very tough, 
tough list here. Then the Dark Soldier says, man, Kyle O'Reilly should have beaten Moxley, fought Tanahashi, and won the AEW title. After the match, Kushida comes out and says, we can't fight at WrestleMania, but we'll do it at All Out. What are your thoughts? Booty cheeks. (laughs) (laughs) I I would love for these guys to wrestle again, but uh, I'm not trying to see all that. That's crazy. Yeah, Tony Khan's not putting... Kushida versus Kyle Riley in the main event of All Out. <laughs> uh, he also asks, Yo now holds the never six man tag titles. However, he needs two guys help to be a champion. Still a hoe, right? Correct. <laughs> yes, his status has not, has not changed. Uh, from Rambone Slam Pig, he says, Are Osprey's recent comments regarding Omega in his Wrestle In interview? an indication that we might be getting a head-to-head matchup this year, or is he just popping off slash shooting? What would be the best venue for that match to occur? I think that's a great question, and it's something that's been the subject of a lot of debate and discussion. And it's not just Osprey's comments in Wrestle In. Both guys have been in the media talking about one another. And then recently, obviously, Osprey is the only one active wrestling, but he's been working in some Kenny references, namely the uh, one winged angel and some of his matches recently as well. And then we've seen even more recent um, Twitter uh, interactions regarding the, his use of the one winged angel and some of their comments. And it's very clear that, well, I don't want to say clear, but I mean, <laughs> Something's going on, and either these guys have heat, which I don't think is, or they could either way, but either they have a real personal issue that is not being led to any sort of match, which I find highly unlikely, or they are working themselves into a match and a program, whether that be an AEW or New Japan or both. And I feel like that's extremely likely. Now, as far as later this year, I guess that all depends on Kenny Omega and his health and the timetable of them bringing it back. Uh, the most recent reports, even just within the past few days, is that AEW is gearing up for his imminent return. But even if he did come back, you know, in the next, like, let's say three or four weeks, how are they going to build a match between him and Osprey while Osprey's in the G1? And you know what I mean? And like, there's a lot of moving parts there, and it's it's hard to tell whether that does happen in AEW or New Japan first. So, uh, but I definitely think that they're working towards a match. This feels very much, in my opinion, like what was going on between Omega and Jericho back before they wrestled in the Tokyo Dome. Definitely, yeah. And even to like Omega's interview with Sean Ross Sapp, um, even before the Wrestle In stuff, kind of being very dismissive to Osprey and putting over Jay White as like the top foreigner. And so I think there's a lot of building blocks here that they will build to a match. And I mean, there's several great stages in both promotions to do it in. I think it'll be a crime to have a Osprey Omega match where fans can't react. So that's going to be the the one kind of negative of why you, you probably wouldn't want to do it in new Japan right now. I mean, we are getting the limited cheering in September, so if that does go in a positive direction by Wrestle Kingdom, maybe we, we will have fans cheering in the Tokyo Dome. And so obviously that would be a great stage for that. 
Um, if not, I mean, doing it here in America where you can capitalize on, on fans cheering and, and doing a really big gate. I mean, you could do it at Russell Grand Slam in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Um, you know, there's going to be the uh, full gear pay-per-view in November. You have, what's their winter pay Well, you know, there's also the unexplored territories for AEW of working in either Canada or England, where these two guys are both from. Mm. And, I mean, you know, just two places that jump off of, you know, the possibilities to me. It's like the O2 Arena in London is always a possibility. It's like 20,000. And then, like, the Sears Center in Montreal is like 32,000, something like that. Um, Those are both possibilities as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. And I know there has been rumors of, uh, AEW heading to Canada soon, so that could be a cool thing to do. Have a, Omega having a big match in his home country, taking on Will Ospreay. Also, I mean, let's say if, if AEW does get the match, sure they could do it in a. It feels like it needs to be somewhere pretty substantial, not just you know in Baltimore or something like that, or the Now Arena. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, you know they. It might be smaller venue size, but they could try MSG. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you wanted to do a really historic place in North America, I mean, it doesn't get much more historic than that. Yeah. It, I, I mean, I also think, you know, Tampa, Florida, Amelie Arena <laughs> <laughs> sure. would be a great spot to run it. Um, And then, obviously, you know, when it comes to Japan, I mean, you could do a Budokan. You could do, uh, you know, one of the other, you know, Tokyo Dome, yeah. But I think Tokyo Dome is where it needs to be, probably. Yeah. But, you know, if it was me, I'd, I'd want to do it in both countries. I'd want to, you know, I'd want to make that a major program that I could run at the top for both companies, you know, and draw major money. So the one thing I think a lot of people are kind of speculating on, though, more so than anything else, is like how the, the realistic nature of what they're doing and whether this is effective marketing or not. And it's, there seems to be different camps. Some people that feel like, you know, um, everything that they're doing is being pre-agreed to. They're calling each other. They're telling each other what to say. And it's like a bit, it, it's a full on elaborate work. Then I'm hearing people in certain camps that are like, yes, it's a work, but they're working really snug. And the things they're saying are based in real hurts and real realities and real feelings. Not unlike, what we saw like in the nineties with like Brett and Shawn Michaels, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then there's some people who think the whole thing is stupid because they feel like this kind of build to a potential, you know, program or match never really does equate to eyes on the product or people watching. So, you know, there's a lot of different kind of uh, thoughts at play when it comes to this whole thing. And I, for me, I'm, I'm all about it. However, how, whatever needs to happen so we can get these two guys to wrestle. There's a part of me that might feel like maybe here's what's going on. Maybe Kenny is like, just came off of a long injury. I don't know how much longer I can do this. Let's, let's fucking call it in. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing well as quickly as we possibly can. You yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to whenever they have that match. I guess think back to the Golden Lovers versus Tanahashi Osprey match from uh, the Road to Wrestle Kingdom, Road to Tokyo Dome. Funnily enough, that's my recommended match of the week this week. Oh, nice. 
Uh, you already know what it is. It's not that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's the, the Ishii match. Uh, that's right. <laughs> worked. Yeah, I got worked. Uh, next question here from Boots and Burns. Let's we'll all talk about Chota Umino and Blackpool Combat Cup from last week. I feel like these questions are a week late. When Chota Umino returns from his excursion, how should New Japan approach match structure of his father as a referee? I was thinking something along the lines of Kento Miyahara's relationship with Keohe Wada. Whenever Miyahara is acting like a cocky heel, Wada acts like a disappointed father and starts pulling on Miyahara's hair to get him to stop. You know, that is something that I thought about uh, recently that I feel like we didn't, we haven't done a, a lot of discussion on. And it feels like the natural question we probably should have brought it up is like, when he comes back, and Red Shoes is like the main referee. How is that going to work? Is Do they totally no-sell it? Is it something only slightly alluded to? Is it something that, like, how he kind of painted a picture of, like, there's a particular relationship that's presented stylistically in the matches? And for me, I really don't know. I guess it really would depend in some ways on what kind of character Shota Amino shows up in. Yeah, I feel like in, on the Japanese commentary side, I feel like they've tried to no-sell it. I mean, they, they gave him the name Umino, and obviously Raichu's is Raichu's Uno, and they haven't, I don't think on the Japanese side they really mentioned it. On the English side, I've, they have definitely mentioned it a lot, and we saw that whole story play out in AEW with Jericho, uh, rivalry with, with Umino. Um, so, yeah, it will be interesting if the Japanese side does start mentioning it more and kind of what the direction they're going to go. Uh, next question it says, as of one of the three people who watches NXT UK every week, I've been keeping an extra eye on the progress of Charlie Dempsey, a.k.a. Bailey Matthews. If the pandemic era never happened, do you think he would still be a young lion? Do you think he would still be bound for WWE AW in his future? I feel like he would have been teaming up with Wheel Utah during the Best of Super Junior and teaming up with the Blackpool Combat Club during Forbidden Door, given that his father is the leader. A young gun trio of Shoto Umino, Wheeler Yuta, and Bailey Matthews would have sounded great. Bro, who the fuck is that? I believe that is William Regal's son. Okay, we did not know him as Bailey Williams, though, right? Bailey Matthews. Uh, Bailey Matthews or uh, Charlie Dempsey. I've never heard those names. Yeah, I don't. So. I don't think his name ever. Whatever name he was using in New Japan ever got set I think on they there. Used whatever his shoot name is. Like, wasn't it like, I don't see, wasn't it Logan Regal? Uh, well, that would be his, that would be a work name. Cause that, cause, maybe that's the one they used. Because Logan Regal. Regal's, Regal's last name is Matthews, I think. Darren Matthews is Regal's real name. Oh, gotcha. So Bailey Matthews was probably his shoot or his, yeah, his like real life name. Yeah. I didn't know that. I don't remember. See, I get uh, Brogan Finley and then Regal's son kind of mixed up a little bit. Mm. So, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to say what uh, would have happened with this kid had the pandemic not occurred, you know? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, he could have still been in the system and have gone through, but clearly, yeah, now he's in NXT UK and guess he's doing his thing there. I haven't watched NXT UK in like two years <laughs> you know um maybe there is a version of him that's out there doing the things you're talking about depending on your views on string theory 
or maybe you believe in predestination and things are just fixed the way they are and nothing can change. It's really dependent on your view of time as a construct. You know what I'm saying? You believe in the multiverse? There could, oh, absolutely. There could be you know another universe where Bailey Matthews Bro, is the IWGP yeah. world champion right now. Bro, there's infinite universes and infinite possibilities, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moving on to uh, key director three seven four eight says I'm wondering who you guys think will be the next new heavyweight champion. The pandemic era gave us evil Shingo and Osprey. Who is the next guy to make that jump, or is that person even on the roster now? That's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that we sort of thought should be champion and be given the ball. And we weren't sure if or when they ever would. When we used to get questions like this, a lot of those guys have gotten title rings. Abushi, Osprey, Shingo, you know? Um, and I'm really trying to rack my brain at this point to think who hasn't had the title that I think is likely to win it or should win it. You know, and I mean, I could throw a Zack Sabre Jr. out there, but I don't know if that's realistic, if that could ever happen. And I'm wondering, like... Yo, evil is it, is the it, champion. Anything can happen. Yeah, well, that's true. But I'm also like, is it too early for an Okan? He hasn't even, like, broken off from, you know, Empire. I don't know. Who's, who's the next guy in deck in New Japan right now? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, also, that they have a lot of young guys in the pipeline, but they really haven't pulled the trigger on them. You know, you have all the LA Dojo guys, you have uh, Narita and uh, Suji and um, Yamura, all those guys on excursion, Omino still on excursion. So there's, there's so many like young guys and all the guys in the New Zealand Dojo. I mean, there's a plenty of young talent. We're seeing them pick up some guys from the indie scene that people are not, really keen on kind of guys like Filthy Tom and Bad Dude Tito and Jonah and all those guys. So, I mean, there's tons of guys that they can go with and make a first-time champion. But, it, you it's know, hard. there's there, there's also the outside possibility. And I know I'm, I don't want to, like, put the AEW Band-Aid on every question because that seems like a cop-out. But when you think about, like, say, Moxley and his long-time histories and ties to both companies and everything and how protected he's been, I, I could see a scenario where he comes back to Japan and it becomes champion for a stretch. Yeah, I thought um, pre-pandemic, I thought he was eventually going to be at least a title challenger and definitely probably win the title. Yeah, he's never been challenged for the main belt yet. Yeah. So um, I think that's definitely a possibility. If you had to pick one guy as like your most likely person right now, though, uh I think I would pick maybe um, Great Ocon just on like the law of averages and probabilities. I think if I'm picking today, I would go with Saber, just because he's more established. He's had world title matches. He's come so close to beating Shingo and Okada. Um, I think it's very realistical and, and plausible at the current state of his push and where he is on the card to do that. Great O'Connor, I would, I would love to see that happen, though. You know, that's that's true, and I thought about that, but my main thing is I just don't know if they'll ever actually do it. 
So I'm gambling on the idea that they just he's not a guy that they plan to ever put the belt on. Yeah. I would say it probably for me be more questionable if it was the the V four title and, and the way they were kind of protecting that, but with the world heavyweight title and just the way that's kind of been booked and uh, with evil having it and some of the quick kind of reigns it did towards the beginning, I could see them giving giving it a belt with saber. You know, another guy too that is sort of in that vein of who could hold it. I don't know if they will. Um but is always on the table at this point as the neck as one of the future champions is Jeff Cobb. That is true, yeah. With his so, monster push that he got in the G one last year. Or, you know, maybe again we're wrong and we just need to bite the bullet and pick Mox because, you know, a Mox title reign seems inevitable. Who knows? I'll tell you one guy who won't who it won't be. Uh Watto? Carl Fredericks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so moving on to uh, less commission 7252. So it's been four years since Gato turned on Okada at destruction in 2018. As much as we've seen Okada shown more of his personality ever since a random thought popped in my head. Have you guys ever thought of Rocky Romero being the manager of Okada I see Romero playing hype man of Okada like he did with Rapungi 3K, and he knows how to deliver amazing promos. Real quick before I answer that, could, could Tamatanga be an IWGP champion at this point? Or like, Is that a storyline we're missing out on, and maybe we're seeing the rise and ascension of Tamatanga, and like we're not even talking about it? That, that's, a, I think, a dark horse candidate. Just want to throw it out there. Yeah. Um, anyways, less commission seven two five two. Fuck you. Okay. No, I'm just playing. Um, but how dare you, you know, want to saddle Okada with a, a mouthpiece? This man closes out shows with promos all the time. What are we doing? He doesn't need Rocky. And um, I mean, I'm all for Rocky getting another paycheck if it, you know, if he needs to put on a third or a fourth hat for the company. Sure. And play manager, but I don't, I don't, I don't see a situation where Okada needs uh, a mouthpiece or a manager or a promo cutter. I mean, he's been at the top of, you know, the mountain by himself for so long at this point. Yeah. Clearly he graduated from the whole needing a manager, needing Gato. And that's the reason why they, they kind of split off was Gato was no real, no longer really needed for Okada. Like Okada's a star. He can cut promos for himself and, even for the, the English audience, he's super over. You, you throw subtitles on, like, it's it's all fun. Bro, Jay White doesn't really need Gato anymore either. Hmm. I wonder if that's uh, going to lead to something. I don't know. He, I mean, the, the one thing that was Gato has been, like, the most vocal and ardent, like, supporter and cheerleader, even when, like, that whole period where uh, Jay White was stateside. Yeah. You're still so like, I miss you, King. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. so at, at least in kayfabe, that'd be a pretty big shock. But then again, you know, he did turn on uh, Okada, so you never know. Yeah, and there is a babyface J run, babyface J white run that should happen. So, yeah. Uh, we had a question here uh, emailed in from Barry Walsh. Uh, says, Hope. All is well. Was thinking the other day about how people have turned around on Ocon, and I got thinking about the United Empire as a whole. 
Cobb is liked by a lot of fans and seems too nice almost to be a real heel monster. Ocon is loved. Franskira seems to come across as a baby face. <laughs> TJP, despite being TJP, is so good in the ring, he almost has the respect of those who watch him. Osprey, again, despite being a tool sometimes, will almost always has a crowd respecting him or giving him an ovation. Hanare is there, too. I'm not saying they fail as heels, but it is possible they could go the tweener route like LIJ and would it be a better fit for the group? I mean, he's not wrong in many of the things that he said there. I think especially with the Western audience, you know. Um, I think right now, though, I don't think it's so overwhelming in those regards that they can't still play effective heels, you know. They might not be the premier heel group of the company, like the number one de facto. And yeah, they might have some tweener leanings, but overall, I think they're still a pretty effective heel group as of now. Yeah, and I think they've been getting heat. And I think even I think in America, with we've seen like with AW and on Strong, I feel like the the Empire, not Empire, has been getting heat. There as well, and I think the more that they're all in Japan together, and the more they're matched up with faces, they will continue to get over as heels. Yeah, we've never really seen the unit fully together in Japan ever at this point, so it's still, to me, like a experiment to some degree. Yeah, definitely. But I think what I think definitely Okan might end up being in that twi- could end up in that tweener role just with his popularity. Um, how much the crowd has been taking to him. They they might have to go tween or even turn him. Maybe. But we'll see. But that uh, wraps up the questions for this week. Let's close off here with recommended match of the week. So last week for the recommended match, I chose Wrestle Kingdom 5, Shinsuke Nakamura versus Go Shiozaki. Yeah, I went and watched this match, and I feel like I've seen Wrestle Kingdom 5 before. You know, um, I haven't seen every Wrestle Kingdom, you know, even though I seem like someone who probably would have. I haven't seen all of them, but I've definitely seen, I know I've seen the main event of this this evening, and I feel like I might have seen Go Shiozaki versus um, Nakamura before, but whether I'd seen it before or whether I hadn't, this felt like an entirely fresh experience for me. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't like read any previews or look at any scores or anything before I actually just turned on the match. The match is very short and simple. It's like sub 15 minutes. And, you know, uh, the one thing I do know is that Wrestle Kingdom 4, Goshi Ozaki considered like one of the young aces of Noah at the time wrestled Tanahashi in an ace versus ace dream match and lost. So then now he's coming out next year, Wrestle Kingdom 5, and wrestling the other, you know, considered top dark ace sort of character in the company at the time, Nakamura. And uh, both of those guys, like, had something to prove, and they told an incredible, physical, short and concise story in the Dome. And, you know, early on, just a lot of very realistic grappling. It seems like Nakamura sort of has the better there. And right when he's about to turn things on and start to, you know, do the the types of strikes that are trademarked to him that we've come to know and love from him, 
like Go Shiozaki's like, fuck this, picks him up, throws the dude into a post, you know, fucks his knee up, starts chopping his knee, starts kicking his knee. And it's a really smart uh, and sound um, strategy from Go because he's taking away his number one weapon, the, uh, I almost called the Kinshasa, the Bombay <laughs> knee. And um, he takes like almost the whole first third of this match just with lots of lots and lots of chops and uh, submission attempts. And th- this match is also interesting in the sense that there's very few wrestling moves. It's a lot of just strike exchanges, uh, or not even exchanges. It's like laid out to where one guy is on top and he's just beating the shit out of the other guy, and the other guy's just kind of taking it. At a certain point, Nakamura gets the momentum back. He starts laying in his own strikes, and then at a certain point, everything just devolves, and these guys are just going back and forth, you know, taking control of the match, just you know, fighting with one another. Tons of suplexes, tons of chops, tons of kicks, knees, elbows. Very, very hard-hitting match. I enjoyed this, like, a lot, a lot. And then, you know, going uh, towards the tail end of the match, it seemed like Go was doing everything in his power to put Nakamura away. You know, big maneuver after big maneuver, and Nakamura just kept, you know, kicking out of everything. And then at the very, very tail end of the match, suddenly, out of nowhere, Nakamura just lands a Bombaye and puts this guy away. You know, one one Bombaye, like he guts he guts through the performance, but he gave a lot to go. Even though Go lost, he gave a lot to go. Go looked great. I enjoyed the match a lot. Um yeah, I'd probably go I don't know, four and a four and a quarter, four and a half, something like that. Yeah. That was, it was an awesome matchup. Yeah, the thing is like it was almost a perfect match. I know I'm not like say going five stars and putting it in that high lofty all times type of uh, situation. But I mean, it was perfect for what it was supposed to be and how it was. And I was so entertained. And I mean, it's a sub 15 minute match. So, I mean, anything that's like sub 15 minutes and four or above, like you're talking about a really, really great match. So yeah, I, I thought this was awesome. And, you know, even though I might not have remembered it from before, I definitely will this time. Nice. Then for the excursion match of the week, you chose Pac defending his All-Atlantic Championship against Shota Umino from RevPro, which also aired as a part of AEW Dark last week. Uh, So check this one out. Uh, I thought this was a very good match. Um, I'm, I think probably a little bit lower than some other Raiders and maybe the consensus overall. I, I went 3.75 on the match. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, again, I thought it was a, a good match, but I feel like, you know, sometimes we get um, Pack who's not going out there to have right. to have a five-star match. You get a Pack who knows how good he is and knows he can kind of, you know, rest on his laurels a little bit. And I, I felt like Pack was spending a lot of time, like, interacting with the crowd because the crowd was, like, singing a lot. The crowd was super behind Umino, and there was a lot of interactions with, like, Pack in the crowd. Um, and I don't feel like he came out there to be like, all right, Umino, let's have this match of the year contender. It was like, let's have a good little match to close this show out in the first defense of this All-Atlantic title. And, and that's what it was. Um, Pac was in control of most of the match, getting the heat 
on Umino. Uh, Umino did a good job selling. We've already said in Forbidden Door, like Umino is in back in great shape. I think he's really picking up on kind of how to build up some fire in the matches. And I think the one thing that's really missing from Umino that we have not seen yet is kind of the the closing stretch of a New Japan main event style. Like I feel like all the matches he has are like very good for the beginning part of a New Japan main event. We really haven't seen him kick it into that second gear. Like we haven't seen like all right, you know that Okada sequence of like reversal, 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 right? All that kind of stuff you would get in like the second half of a main event. And I don't think I, I don't know if it's a thing of where he's he hasn't been given that chance or he just hasn't developed it yet. I feel like a lot of his bigger matchups lately, he's kind of been on the the end of where he has to sell a lot. I'm thinking back to like the Jay White match and some of the other matches he has in Rev Pro. I think he does a lot of selling and doesn't necessarily get a lot of opportunity to have that big kind of closing stretch. Sometimes he's kind of in that underdog role, and he definitely was in that underdog role here in this matchup of Pac being the veteran, being an established Rev Pro guy, being an AEW guy. Uh, but yeah, had some good offense there towards the end. Uh, Pat caught him in the the brutalizer uh, submission there, got him to tap out in the middle of the ring. Uh, fun matchup. Uh, I like I said, I went three point seven five. I know some people have gone four stars, but for me, I just felt like I I know when Pack is not giving it a hundred percent. Not that he was, you know being lazy or not doing good work but again he wasn't going out there to like let's absolutely blow the roof off this place and have a match of the year contender yeah you know i did hear that uh there was a recent michael oku versus shota umino match where uh shota sort of kind of leaned into a heel uh role and kind of experimented with that a little bit they said the match was very good so or at least that's the report i heard so nice let's give our uh, picks out for this week so for me for the excursion match of the week we're gonna go with the ghc heavyweight title match from this past weekend's noah destination 2022 satoshi kojima defending the ghc title against kano nice and i've pulled out a dirty gem from way back it's not on new japan world but i found it and it is the second and last matchup in singles competition competition between one tomohiro ishii as he takes on daisuke sekimoto <gasps> sekimoto he's not it's not a new japan guy that's right this took place on new japan lockup lockup is one of new japan's many at this point now defunct slash failed sub brands of the uh 2000s era and uh if you're not familiar with lockup or wonderland or you know never do your research (laughs) no but in all seriousness ishii versus sakamoto they only wrestled twice and uh this was the second match that they had so and that's from november 24th 2007 Nice. Yeah, looking forward to checking that one out. You you, you uh put this earlier on the chat last week with uh, me, you, and Samsa. And so, yeah, really looking forward to uh, checking this out. I know it's, a, it's an early Ishii and Takamoto, but I can still imagine that it still is a uh, great matchup. 
Oh, it absolutely is. And then uh, if that doesn't satiate your full appetite, there's supposedly an even better first matchup between these two from Big Japan in 2005. Nice. Well, that's going to uh, wrap things up for us here this week. Next week, we'll be back to review the Knights of G1 that will be happening this week. So if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. Make sure to connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. Follow the network at Social Suplex. On Facebook, we are Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. Also, you can find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group, Facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Squared Circle. On Instagram, we're at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I'm the Pro Black Guy. Y'all just keeping a strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences Podcast with Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. The AEW Match Guide Podcast, hosted by Sir Sam, which is uh, back now with their second round of the match guide so make sure you check that out great match generator hosted by danny don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review and we will catch you next week on keeping it strong style the ace of podcasts it's your thank you for listening to keeping it strong style we'll see you next time At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.